you're listening to Just One of the Guys. Now with 800% more podcasting awesomeness. Everyone and welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Show. Once again, my name is Sean Engle, and once again, I'm here to cover the Green Lantern comics, starting with cover date June 1990 and ending with cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. And this time out, once again, I'm going to get the opportunity to cover both those characters. First off, in Green Lantern number 126, we start off a new era for Kyle. He's getting a new writer in the guise of Jay Ferber, and he's also taking a new direction. A direction that kind of leads him to portraying himself as a villain in jail to figure out just where a victim of a jail escapee from the slab is being held. Is this story going to hold up to the Broadmoor stories that preceded it? Is it going to be a Ben Ray bloat of crap? We'll just have to see. But we'll also have to see what we're covering in the second book, which is Green Lantern 80-page giant number two. And I know what you're thinking. After last week's Green Lantern 80-page giant, why are you covering this? Well, first of all, I'm covering it because I'm supposed to. I'm covering everything. But secondly, because it's actually really good. The stories aren't culled from inventory stories that have been lying around in someone's filing cabinet for the past decade. Plus, I've also been able to finagle a bunch of podcast luminaries to come on and talk to me about the show. So basically, what you're getting today is the podcast equivalent of the Battle of the Network Stars, where I've got such greats as Rob Kelly, Andrew Leyland, Stephen Lacey, W. Blaine Dowler, Paul Spataro, Dave Walker, J. David Weeder, Michael Leyland, Gabe Kaplan, Gil Gerard, Mom and Shantz, the 1968 Miami Dolphins, and many more to be on the show. So stay tuned after these podcast promos, and we'll get right to it. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hard-working people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. This looks like a job for Superman. Captain America! It's the Dying Man! It's the Rocketeer! Hulk! Smash! Gentlemen, you're up. <laughs> Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at 2TrueFreaks.com. 
Hey, Michael. Hey, Dad. We need to record another new trailer. Another one? Yes. You know that we read comics and then talk about comics because, as we've established, talking about comics you've not read is just dumb. Yeah, and you make me do it every Thursday. Well, we've moved. Have we? Yes, we have outgrown our old location. I don't feel like I've moved. And we have now moved to twotruefreaks.com. What was that again? Twotruefreaks.com. Hey, kids, comics. Still, every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com. And we're back. But before we get into coverage of the Green Lantern book, let's go ahead and open up the Just One of the Guys email bag and see what kind of letters we have lying around in there. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and this time out, we've got a couple letters from faithful listener to the Great Wide North, Mr. Scott Davis. Thanks, Scott, for writing in. I appreciate hearing you on the show, or I appreciate reading you on the show. I appreciate reading your emails. I appreciate the fact that I should script these out more. <sighs> Anyhow, Scott's first letter goes Iron Lantern. That's what it's entitled, and it says, Hi, Sean. It's been a while since I emailed, and now I'm playing catch-up again. Your torrid pace of one podcast a week is amazing. I don't know if there's anyone else out there doing this. It's great. You know, there, there are shows that do podcasts weekly. The Two True Freaks are known to do their monthly Mondays every, you know, much longer than I've done. Of course, they switch things up between Star Trek and comics and Star Wars, so they've got a variety of stuff to cover there. But they've been regularly putting out shows every Monday for almost 450 episodes now, so that's a lot of content there. So I, I, I appreciate your uh, your uh, praise and what I've done, but yeah, it's petty compared to some other people who've been out there. He gets on saying, I was able to pick up Iron Lantern, and it was fantastic. I'm still amazed that DC and Marvel used to do these crossovers. Luke Jacanetti knows a ton about a ton of stuff about comics, eh? <laughs> yes, he does. His brain must be a database of info. Oh, you have no idea, sir. This issue was very well done, and I really enjoyed it. And I agree, it's weird that Kyle is a bad guy in this issue, while Hal is actually the bad guy in the current GL title at the time. Ugh, I can't believe they never did a sequel. They tease us with the Mandarin Estro in the final panel and leave us hanging for the rest of our lives. Yeah, that has been the common complaint I've heard from people who've read the Iron Lantern story, that there wasn't a second issue, when there definitely needed to be. I can't speak for the rest of the Amalgam line, but I've got to assume, if they were written like this, there had to be some good stuff that needed to be followed up in the stories. Anyway, he says, talk to you again soon, Scott self-appointed head of the Just One of the Guys Canadian Contingent. Wow, that, that's cool. I've actually got a Canadian tension. Wow, thank you. Thank you, Scott. And then we have another letter from Scott as well. He's uh, actually questioning me about Twitter, and the email says, Hey, Sean, are you on Twitter yet? There's lots of interaction with comic creators over there, which is fun. Bo Smith's just tweeted about the Thor gender switch, and he said that he'd already did it before and linked to the Green Lantern Bots Forever, the review of Gal Gardner, Warrior Number 42. Awesome. And he's got the tweet here where Bo's talking about how he switched up Guy's gender in an issue of Guy Gardner Warrior, and how he kind of feels that the Thor gender switch thing is just kind of, well, kind of silly and attention-grabbing, which... I'm neither here nor there on it. I mean, it's it, it does seem very attention-grabbing, but by the time this episode comes out, it'll probably already be in play, and the next big thing will be talked about, you know, Captain America becoming, or the Falcon becoming Captain America, and 
Iron Man being replaced by a robot and Ultron being a good guy now and you know who knows whatever they'll be putting out uh, it's comics uh, change is inevitable and change is also going to unfortunately unnerve a lot of comic book readers which is what I consider to be par for the course now but that does it for email right now. I've got a lot of stuff to do on this episode. I've got a lot of people to talk to. So I'm going to go ahead and shut the email bag down for right now and get into my coverage of Green Lantern number 126. Green Lantern 126 was covered in July 2000 and released on May 3rd, 2000. The information, of course, comes from the ever-popular and ever-awesome Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. The cover price was $1.99 US and $3.25 Canada, and the title was Deep Cover. The writer was Jay Ferber, the penciler was Gus Vasquez, the inker was Walden Wong, colorist was Rob Schwager, letterer was Sean Conat, assistant editor was Frank Berrios, and the editor was Bob Schreck. Off the coast of New Jersey, U.S. Marshal helicopters attempt to capture an escapee from the slab, a maximum security prison designed for housing supervillains, by dropping a concussion grenade on him. This goes about as well as you would expect, which leads Green Lantern Kyle Rayner to have a meeting with the slab's warden, Dunhay, to discuss how they might be able to get some information from the escapee's cellmate about the location of his kidnapped ex-wife. Kyle suggests that he go undercover as a criminal, and Dunhay eventually relents. But as Kyle leaves the room, a prison guard asks the warden if having a superhero here is a good idea, and Dunhay says as long as he doesn't stumble into anything, they should be fine. Cut to Kyle, posing as criminal, the Jade Dragon. Of course, being escorted to the shell of Shakedown, a behemoth of a villain who Kyle quickly makes friends with, without having to toss his salad, thankfully. Shakedown shows Kyle the lay of the land, but knowing that time is running out on finding the ex-wife, Kyle presses Shakedown about his former cellmate. But the hulking hitman says he doesn't want to talk about it, making Kyle's job even more difficult. Later that night, Kyle is awakened by a group of prison guards who forcibly take Shakedown out of the cell against his will. Thinking that all of this is a bit hinky, Kyle exits the cell and follows the guards to an area where various villains are being experimented upon by prison scientists. The appearance of Kyle distracts the scientists long enough to allow the prisoners to revolt, taking out their captors since they had their inhibitor collars removed. The villains barricade themselves in the basement, while the warden admonishes his men for letting Green Lantern in on his secret. You see, the scientists were trying to replicate the powers of the prisoners so that they could use them to help mankind, or some sort of BS like that. But now that they've taken hostages, they'll need to start killing them off in order, in order to let the warden know that they mean business. Of course, Kyle can't allow that to happen, as he drops the Jade Dragon disguise and delivers some consequences, copyright Allen and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, to the baddies. But Kyle is outnumbered, and eventually he tells the criminals why he's really here. He needs to find info about where Shakedown Cellmite might have stuck his captive ex-wife. The cons relent to help Kyle, but Dunhay has decided to send troops in to end them all. Cal tells the criminals that he'll vouch for them and get the experimentation stopped, provided they let him handle the guards and they don't resist. The Seedless Legion of Doom agrees, and Kyle easily takes out the guards and reports the experimentation to Oracle, the JLA, and the Department of Extranormal Operations. 
crisis averted and the prisoner's experimentation ended, Shakedown reveals to Green Lantern where Undertow took his captive wife. Rushing to the underwater cave, Cal rescues the woman in the nick of time, giving her mouth-to-mouth in the process, and saving the day. Now for the first non-Ron Mars pen Green Lantern comic, this was a pretty good one. Cal hasn't radically changed tonally, but the art is another story. Gone are the clean, consistent looks of Daryl Banks, and in are the more cartoony lines of Gus Vasquez. I'm not really certain whether he's going to be around for a while, but in this story it kind of fluctuates from the style that we saw with Daryl Banks. It's not really bad art, but it is a little inconsistent. Fairbur did a good stint over on Generation X and the Teen Titans in the late 90s, well, the Titans in the late 90s and the early 2000s, and his voice is suited for the sort of young adult speak that fits well with Kyle. It's not a stellar book, but it's leaps and bounds over the last issue's very inventory-tastic feel. So, if this is what we're looking forward to in the post-Ron Mars run, I'm not as concerned as I was last time, so fingers crossed, folks. But let's go ahead and head into the coverage of the specific specifics in the book. The cover is a good example of the difference of the art. Here, Kyle looks a lot beefier and a lot less lean. He looks more like a more like a linebacker than a running back. And I've known I know I've used that analogy before, but it fits really well here. And the amount of teeth he has in his mouth makes me think that he might have been taken over by the Jeff Johns parallax entity. I mean. Plus, I don't want to know what the prisoner might be getting ready to make Kyle do. He's got his hand, and it's grabbing it, and he looks like he might be directing it toward a certain part of his body. So, welcome to Oz, folks. Welcome to Oz. Pages 1 and 2. Usually in the comics, we don't get a prologue sequence in these books, and, you know, I kind of dug it. it. It gives the book a more cinematic quality, for lack of a better term. It's kind of like... I don't want to put it akin to the James Bond opening sequences, but it's kind of like uh, you know something that you'd see in 24 or a crime drama where they surmise just what happened prior to the goings-on in the book to kind of give you a little, you know, just a little prologue of what's going on. So it's, it's kind of neat, and, you know, when they do it infrequently in the stories, I think it works pretty well. Page three is Kyle is directed towards his jail cell, and we get to find out that his name that he took as a criminal is the Jade Dragon. Yeah, really. Uh, I guess there could be worse names out there, but wasn't that the name of the restaurant that Jenny, John, and Marin went to in that issue where Fatality showed up in New York City? Hold on, I'm going to do a quick, quick check on that, and I'll be right back. <laughs> And no, it it wasn't the Jade Jade Dragon. It was the Jade Princess. But I knew it had something to do with Jade because I commented on that issue. But I think that name probably would have fit better with the Kyle's cellmate wanting to get into him uh, in in a certain form of speaking, if you know what I mean. Uh. 
page four, I'm very surprised that Kyle's idea of trying to pick a fight with the toughest guy in prison and that'll keep you safe route actually kind of works because despite the fact that Shakedown is a super-powered hero and I have no idea what his superpower is because it's never really specifically mentioned in here and if he is a villain that's appeared in other books, he's such a C-lister that I don't think he has a who's who entry. I'll have to ask Rob and Shag about that. But it's a good idea. You know, that's kind of what they talk about in a lot of prison films, you know, Shawshank and stuff like that. You know, you want to go pick a fight with the bad guy to show how tough you are. That way people leave you alone. So makes sense in Kyle's in Kyle's mind, at least. Page seven, we get the rock stupid guards coming into the jail cell after the warden had told them not to. And it basically gives impetus impetus for Kyle wanting to come out and find out what's going on. So your DC tax dollars at work uh, or your DC universe tax dollars at work. Yeah. Not hiring the, uh, the best and brightest at this prison. Page eight. I am glad that they explain how Kyle would know who all these supervillains are because I certainly don't. They say that he spent time reviewing the JLA supervillain database or JSVB is like, as I like to refer to it. And I kind of find it amusing that Kyle spent some of his off time working on the watchtower reading up files of various supervillains so if he ever had to go up against them he'd have some sort of knowledge of how to take them down so i like that fact and i like that they reference how he would know that page 10 panel 4 i mentioned in the story that kyle has essentially gone into prison to try and find this trapped ex-wife who was put in a certain place from this ex-con who escaped from the jail and i like the fact that here interspersed through the book, especially here on page 10, panel 4, there's these single panels of the trapped ex-wife stuck in a cavern, with the cavern slowly filling up with seawater. It really adds a sense of urgency to the book, and it's a nice little it's a nice little cinematic way in the comic to kind of get the get things ramped up, and it's it's good storytelling here. Page 11, panel 5, this is Something, however, that's kind of out of place in the book. Sonar goes on a tirade about liberals, about how they uh, allow these people into jail and they expect to pay for them and give them free TV and everything, which, you know, I can understand his feelings about that. But it seems a bit out of character for not only the character of Sonar, but for the book as well. I mean, even when Chuck Dixon was writing for the comic, this sort of overt name calling of specific, you know, political parties was never out there so it maybe jay ferber is just a bit more uh, open in his political beliefs could be page 13 panel 3 typhoon mentions that he's the only hero that has gone up against or that the only hero that he has gone up against that was near the big time was firestorm sadly he's still a lot cooler than slipknot so even though we've got c-list characters here Slipknot isn't even cool enough to be here. Sadly. Page 17, and I like the fact that Kyle convinces the villains that he'll contact the right people to make sure that this experimentation gets stopped. He resolved the situation without having to have a giant superhero dust-up, which is really nice. I think it just proves that Kyle has finally matured to a superhero who doesn't feel the need to go in, guns a-blazing, and beating the crap out of people. Essentially, that stint that he had in the Heroes Quest storyline with Captain Marvel has definitely paid off. 
And then finally to wrap the book off on the final page where Kyle is rescuing the woman or has rescued the woman, he's doing actual CPR on the ex-wife rather than using his ring to make a defibrillator or something like that, which is a nice change up. I actually enjoy, and I actually enjoy the rambling dialogue from the rescued woman. She gives this thing about, oh my God, I thought it was done for. What an idiot must be. Thank you. I should have listened to my mom and never gotten involved with that loser in the first place. She always said he'd come to this. Well, not exactly, she said, but you know what I mean. And God, I'm rambling. I'm rambling when I'm nervous. I hope this isn't too much trouble for you. It's Jay Ferber actually does a really good job with delivering some in, intelligent, clever, workable very 90s pop culture dialogue that that seems to fit in the story it doesn't feel out of place like it kind of did in some other issues uh, i guess i'm looking at that again at that 80 page giant with ben rabe's story which was yeah it's good so uh yeah the first non-ron mars issue is actually good we'll see how things go from here we'll also see like i always like to do in the comics what kind of ads I have. So let's take a quick look at those. The front end side cover is an advertisement for Toonami with that, I can't remember what his name is, but the little CGI robot who runs the Toonami console and it's got images of it looks like Dragon Ball Z, Voltron, Thundercats, and some other anime thing. Unfortunately, my knowledge of anime is pretty limited, but Toonami, yeah, it was a thing back then and I guess, you know, Toonami's still going on, maybe. I haven't watched Cartoon Network in a while. A few more pages in, you get an advertisement for Corn Nuts, where you could instantly win $25,000 for, I guess, eating Corn Nuts and going to see the Farrelly Brothers movie, Me, Myself, and Irene, with Jim Carrey, which you'd have to pay me $25,000 to want to go see that movie, but that's just me. After that, we get an ad for the Men in Black video game for the Game Boy Color, and this is less based off the movie and probably more based off the uh, animated TV show, which was also, I think, more based off the Malibu comic, I believe, uh, written by Will Cunningham, if I'm thinking correctly. I haven't read that in a while, so I know there was a short-lived animated TV show, I think, that aired on Fox that featured the uh, Men in Black. It wasn't specifically Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, but it was kind of modeled after their characters. So Game Boy Color games, kind of cool. Then there's another weird advertisement for the Three Musketeers bars displaying the three multi-ethnic musketeers fighting off monkeys and a pig-masked overweight villain while they try and rescue a chest full of Three Musketeers bars. I don't get it. It's... It's weird. Then after that is Four Wheel Thunder, I guess a truck racing game, uh, essentially probably off-road with better graphics for the Sega Dreamcast specifically, not for the PlayStation. So Sega's still trying to get their games out for the Dreamcast, and I don't know, it doesn't seem to be working all that much. I don't even remember this game being out. And I remember at least a few of the Dreamcast games, so yeah, this could be the reason why the Dreamcast struggled against the PlayStation. And then after that, they've got a two-page spread in the middle of the book uh, where you can go one-on-one with Grant Hill if you, uh, I guess, buy Crunch Candy Bars. So you could uh, 
win some personal hang time with the man himself, Grant Hill, or you could win some officially cool NBA gear. And I guess this kind of falls into the sort of branding that they were talking about. I think Tom Panarese was talking about uh, how they branded Sprite to uh, go with hip-hop groups, and you know, I guess they're branding the Nestle Crunch candy bars to go with uh, NBA players. So, you know, if it works for them, if it gets kids uh, into their, you know, who are into one genre, into one sport, into eating their sugary snacks, then more power to them. Of course, the same really can't be said for the tobacco is wacko ad that has just a ridiculous looking skater kid with a decapitated head puffing out cigarette smoke and looking all green and messed up and I guess this is one that was actually sponsored by uh, Lorillard Tobacco Company which I guess is one of the manufacturers of major cigarette brands so this is the point in time where cigarettes were advertising not to smoke in kids advertisements or in kids magazines and comics sounds kind of counterproductive but yeah whatever i would think that people would know that smoking is not the most healthy thing you can do so uh, whatever then we actually get another two-page splash advertisement for speed punks which looks like it looks like the me characters in you know essentially mario kart you know of course, it's for the PlayStation, so it's obviously not for the Wii or the Wii U, but it's got basically an advertisement of a giant high-top sneaker, and I guess that makes you a punk if you wear giant high-top sneakers. Whatever. Then after that, you get a, another weird advertisement for Tang, and not that kind of Tang, folks, but the actual uh, sugary, orangey drink that is now coming in a pouch, and you've got the... Uh, Tang orangutan sitting in the uh, pouch of a kangaroo holding up the little uh, Capri Sun type pouches of Tang. So all this time they've changed it from a mix to pouches. So thank goodness uh, Capri Sun was around so that Tang could do that. And wow, we've got a, a lot of two-page ads in here. The next one is for EverQuest, which has a very epic looking you know, sort of Dungeons and Dragons two-page ad of various creatures and you know, archers and bards and knights fighting off against, you know, trolls and ogres and dark elves and such. And I guess this is a game for the PC CD-ROM and it's a 3D accelerator graphics. Ooh. So if you've got, you know, if you're linking up your two uh, video cards, your two NVIDIA video cards and running them in, oh, I can't remember what to call parallel mode or whatever, this would probably be an awesome game to play. I mean, They've got little screenshots of the graphics, so it looks like they're more impressed with the drawn, you know, George R. R. Martin-looking artistry than they are with the actual graphics of the game, because the graphics at the bottom are just in little panels there. So, uh, there you go. Then after that, you get another advertisement for a video game, and this is from Vactical, the same one who does those uh, 3D Superman Multipath Adventures games. This one's called Terminus, and I guess it's the beginning of the uh, MMOs, and this was even before EverQuest Online or anything like that, so yeah, I wonder how this would work in, in, in the uh, era of still very few people having anything but dial-up. Odd. And even more video games abound with South Peak Entertainment's Fighter Destiny, which is another completely forgettable fighting game. 
this time uh, for the Nintendo 64. So could be why it's not, and it looks like it not only has a sort of Street Fighter or maybe Virtua Fighter type feel, but it also looks like it has a sort of side-scroller Mario Party type challenge as well. Weird. After that, there's another advertisement for a video game. This one is Rally Challenge 2000, which is another racing game. So basically, we've got two types of games, fighting games and racing games. I guess um, maybe that MMO by Vactical isn't that bad a thing. Got another very generic ad for Powerade with a very red, you know, page. Then after that, we've got an advertisement for Superman vs. Predator, the three-issue prestige format miniseries written by David McElhinney and uh, Alex Maleev. It looks pretty cool, Superman taking out the Predator. You know, I personally, I think, you know, it says it's at full strength, Superman might be able to be the Predator, but with no superpowers. So this must be one of those things where he's on a planet with a red sun or something, because... Yeah, Superman taking out a Predator, you know, all he has to do is sit from space and heat vision of death, and it's pretty much over with. So, yeah, I guess there had to be some way that he'd have to go face-to-face him without superpowers, because, yeah, Superman. Finally, we've got that back inside cover with the uh, Multipath Adventures of Superman, and that's actually not by Bactical. That's actually by... Uh, brilliant digital and multipath movies. So I was incorrect in saying that, but yeah, it's it's a choose your own adventure video game with Superman. So interesting. And the uh, oh my god, I just looked. This, this is ridiculous. It's the back outside cover with the I can't tell who drew this, but it's an image of Batman. It's the modern day Batman without his trunks and the very gray costume, but he's still got the blue cape and cowl and blue gloves. And it's an advertisement for milk, chocolate milk. So not only is Batman all dark and foreboding, but he's got a chocolate milk mustache, which makes him look eerily like a sort of Cesar Romero, or it makes him look more like Jim Gordon has taken over the, uh, taken over the cape and cowl of Batman. So yeah, that's, that's, bizarre but i guess at the time you know these uh got milk advertisements were uh taking the uh, guys of the uh, dc superheroes into them so there you go but that does it for this issue i enjoyed it a heck of a bunch i hope you did too i also hope that you'll enjoy what's coming up next because i'm looking forward to it it's green lantern 80 page giant number two in which i have corralled a ton of podcast excellence to come and help me out with it so stay tuned won't you and thank you. He said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. 
Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of The Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com. Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle, Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Trine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water Podcast. And we are back. And this time out, we're going to be doing something a little different. Oh, yeah, sure, we're going to be taking a look at Green Lantern 80-page giant number two, but I'm actually going to be doing, a, well, a, like a little change-up. I have finagled a bunch of podcasters to come along and do this uh, issue. Essentially, Green Lantern 80-page giant number two is a, well, it's better than 80-page giant number one, which was basically a dumping ground for all these inventory stories from the past feels like Green Lantern Corps quarterly. This one are brand new stories by a bunch of great artists and a bunch of great writers, and they're Kyle Rayner teaming up with various members of the DC Universe. And the first character that he's teaming up with is Aquaman. And if you know anyone who knows Aquaman more than this person, then you know someone who knows more than Aquaman. <laughs> who is that person? <laughs> I have no idea who that person is. He is the he is the person who is running the Aquaman Shrine. He is also the co-host with the Irredeemable Shag of the Who's Who, the Fire and Water, and uh, various other podcasts over at the Fire and Water podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I am very proud to have on the show Mr. Rob Kelly. Hey, Rob. Hey, Sean. Thanks for that build-up, man. That was quite an intro. Thank you. Well, I... I you you definitely deserve it. Like I said, like if we were talking before we came on the show, I really enjoy the Fire and Water podcast, and I especially enjoy the Who's Who podcast. It, <laughs> it amazes me that you initially thought Who's Who probably wouldn't be the big thing in there, but yeah, I think the nostalgia factor just draws people into the show. Yeah, I freely admit I was completely wrong. I told Shag that no one would listen to that particular spinoff show, and I was totally, totally wrong. I admit that up front. Well, I, I'm I've been enjoying incredibly, and I'm really glad that I get to talk to you because I was thinking to myself, when am I ever going to be able to talk Green Lantern to Aquaman? And this just popped up in in the rotation of what I was going to be doing, and I thought I have to tap Rob Kelly, and it just kind of expanded from there. And <laughs> that uh, sense has never been said before. I, well, <laughs> I need to get Rob Kelly on this immediately. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on and we're going to be taking a look at the first story in this uh, 80 page giant. It's a Green Lantern and Aquaman story called Phases. Uh, it was written by Christopher Priest, uh, penciled by M.D. Bright, inked by Greg Adams. The colorist was Mike Danza and the letterer for the story was Albert Guzman. And it goes 
with a synopsis kind of like this. Darting through the murky depths of the ocean, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner and King of the Seven Seas Aquaman share some bro chatter about their respective girl problems. Suddenly, the ruler of Atlantis pulls Kyle to an abrupt halt as they reach their destination, a kilometer-long wall that descends into the ocean farther than Aquaman can see. Prior to all of this, the JLA were notified about a missing French nuclear sub, and while Aquaman was searching for it, he came across this odd alien barrier. The two dive deeper into the ocean and try to discover the wall's origin, but at the seven-mile mark, Kyle starts to lose concentration, making him have to stop for a breather metaphorically speaking. But as Kyle rests his hand on the wall, the strange energy engulfs the heroes, sucking them through the wall into a strange civilization. Plus, it ages Kyle while de-aging Arthur because, you know, science. The two find the missing sub, and Aquaman does some Frenching with the trapped seaman, uh, I mean, sorry, <laughs> talking French with the guys in the sub, until eventually a GL is able to pull the sub and Aquaman back into the regular ocean, where the properly aged Arthur pimp slaps Kyle back into consciousness before he can be crushed by the pressure of being seven miles down without ring constructs to protect him. Crisis averted, the duo drag the sub back to the surface while Kyle awkwardly asks Aquaman to do that French thing again, which is kind of disturbing. But that's the synopsis for this. What, what do you have to say about this uh, story, Rob? Uh, well, first of all, I have to thank you for introducing me to this story because I did not know this story existed. This is completely new to me. Um, I like to think that I have like, I am at least, I have not read every single Aquaman comic that's ever been printed and there's where he's been in everything, but I like to think I'm aware of them all. But this one, I was totally just like, what is this a thing? I didn't know that. Uh, the nineties and early two thousands is like my sort of dead zone in terms of like how little I know about the, what went on in comics at that time. And this era of Aquaman, the hook for hand, is my least favorite era of Aquaman, as I've mentioned a bunch of times. So, like, this story was completely new to me. And it was it was, it was was just fun reading, like, you know, what is, to me, an all-new Aquaman story, even though it's a 20-year-old comic at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's it's a lot of fun. It's very simple. I like that it's just straightforward of just, just two guys on a mission. Um, I liked the banter of Aquaman and the younger members uh, of the JLA back when like when you know, this was in the JLA era with when Grant Morrison was writing the book. So you had Flash and Green Lantern being the new heroes, the new guys. And I appreciate I, I like the dynamic that they created of the old the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Manhunter being the older hands sort of talking down to the young guys. I thought that was a fun new third generation way of, of doing these, these characters. And it continues on here. And uh, yeah, no, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. I'll, I'll agree with you. I do like the aspect of uh, the older members of the justice league, you know, sort of being the mentors for the newer, uh, the newer characters like Kyle and uh, Wally as the flash. Um, I, I think Christopher priest is a, a good story. The one thing that I've got, and it's unfortunately sort of the nature of the beast with these 80 page giants, the stories are these little, you know, 10, 11 page stories. So you don't get much character development, but I think Christopher priest does a pretty good job of, you know, writing the dialogue with there's banner back and forth between Kyle and Arthur. And it works pretty well. I also uh, want to comment a bit on the art. I really am a big fan of MD Brighton. I think he does a good, he does a good job drawing the characters here, but I think he's kind of, uh, there's kind of a disservice with Greg Adams doing here. 
I always preferred M.D. Bright when he was inked by Romeo Tangal, which was uh, around the era of the early Green Lantern uh, third generation or the third edition in the story where uh, Gerard Jones was writing him in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I thought that was some some really good artwork here. It, the artwork's not bad, but I think M.D. Bright would be served with, uh, with a better inker. I'm not saying negative things about Adams, but uh, the artworks just could be better for me. Like I said, the nature of the eighty-page the eighty-page giants means you get small, compressed stories. But the dialogue between the two characters was really good. I mean, I think the only negative thing I could say about it was the whole. It felt it felt kind of like Christopher Priest had an idea of them going exploring this, and he said, "Okay, that's it." And they said, "Well, that's not quite enough pages. Uh, let's do something more." Okay. Well, then Aquaman and Green Lantern change ages. Okay, well, uh, that's another page. Uh, what do we got? Uh, okay, Aquaman can't breathe in this atmosphere. Uh, okay, that's good. I think we've finished it up. So <laughs> it, it felt like they were kind of building on stuff. And uh, that would be the only real negative thing about it. But overall, yeah, I really enjoyed this. And I'm glad that you were able to come on and uh, talk to me about this. Uh, and I'm glad that I was able to kind of... Uh, you know, bring you into reading a, a brand new uh, Aquaman comic that, you know, sadly is you know twenty years old by now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it always feels like uh, it always feels like I've discovered a you know lost treasure finding a an Aquaman story I've never read before. Hmm. Well, Rob, thanks again for coming on the show. I would like to do this uh, the, to pimp some of the stuff that you're doing online. So why don't you tell people what kind of things you're doing online and where people can find uh, stuff that you've done. Well, you can always find me at AquamanTrying.net and at Fire the Fire and Water podcast, which you can find on iTunes at the Fire and Water pod, uh, Fire and Water podcast.blogspot.com and on Stitcher as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also like to say that you posted a little bit of this, this online that you and Dan O'Connor are getting back to uh, doing Ace Corroy stuff. So I'm looking forward to uh, to season three of that. Yes, Ace Corroy will be coming back. We're not announcing a date yet, but there will we are we are working on season three as we speak. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait to see uh, to see Mutt Kilroy in the uh, show. Swing, <laughs> <laughs> swing through the vines with uh, CGI monkeys. Following. Dear Lord, everyone, I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but again, thanks, Rob, for coming on the show. And I really appreciate getting to sh- the chance to talk to you. Thanks, John. Aquaman. All right, and our second book today is a, or not our second book, our second story today is a story about Big Barda. And unfortunately, I couldn't find anyone specifically who had a thing for Big Barda, so I pulled someone who was incredibly awesome on the internet and incredibly awesome in podcasting. You may know him from Hey Kids Comics, which he does with his son Michael, or The Palace of Glittering Delights, which he does on his own and is incredibly amazing. Ladies and gentlemen, it's it's my pleasure to welcome for the first time technically on the show my good friend from the UK, Mr. Andrew Leyland. Hey, Andy, how's it going? Uh, fine, thank you, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it was the only one left. So by default, I got Big Bird. So, so you got, got the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. No, actually, I don't agree with that. I've read a number of the, the stories in this issue. Not all of them. I just didn't have 
this was a very last minute thing, wasn't it? Yeah, this was one of these behind things. the curtain. So I've only had time to read a couple of the stories, including mine. But I, I think I, I, I drew a good straw here, to be brutally honest with you. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say the same. You know, uh, so far reading through all these, um, there's been some really good stuff, which you don't really expect to find in these sort of 80 page giants, which are just these little short stories that are kind of writ offhand. So I'm, I'm pretty impressed with this. Yeah, look, well, when you sent it me, because again, like I said, last very last minute recording session, um, and I'm just looking at the contents page, because like you, I was expecting, I always expect these 80 page giants to be who was in the office when they were assigned. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at this cast list, cast list, um, list of creators in the contents page, and some some quality people here. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, we've got Christopher Priest, we've got Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning, we've got Marv Wolfman. So we've got Mark some... Wade. Mm-hmm. We've got some pretty good people here, and which is a nice change because the last episode I covered the uh, first 80-page giant for Green Lantern, and it was all inventory crap. <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I was a little bit expecting that maybe this was going to be that, but no, pleasantly no, surprised. Yeah, I, I, I've been too. So we'll go ahead and get into this. This second story is called Art Attack. And like I said, it was written by Dan Abnett. I'm sorry, Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. The penciler was Oscar Jimenez. The inker was Eduardo Alpuente. Letterer was John Costanza. And the colorist was Noel Giddings. At the Museum of Art in New York City, a moving van makes a special delivery to the guard around back, a delivery that involves a silenced pistol shot to the head. Unbeknownst to the murderer, a plainclothes Kyle Rayner and Big Barda tour the museum, with Kyle attempting to explain the concept of art to the apocalyptic escapee. Barda just doesn't seem to get it, but she does like the anim- animatronic display of the warriors crashing through the main entrance. Unfortunately, these are the art thieves that killed the card at the beginning of the book, and they demand that everyone remain calm while they abscond with the artwork. Barda decides the goons need to face some consequences, copyright Allen and Emily Middleton, 2014, all rights reserved, and starts doing some selective punching. Kyle, for whatever reason, is more worried about protecting the art than the people in the museum, but just as Barda has the thieves on the ropes, she's suddenly distracted. The main baddie tries to sneak up behind Barda and knock her out with a bust of Nero, but Kyle steps in and bags the bad bandit and saves the day. Crisis averted, Kyle asks just what caught Barda's eye, and she shows him the piece of art that moved her so. A crayon painting of a family at home. Aww. Oh, that was really sweet. It, it's because it, art is what you want it to be. Exactly. You're not going to be precious and pretentious about it. And to her, that child's drawing was more impressive than all of those art things in the art gallery. Loved it. Mm-hmm. And that was a really sweet story. And that was a perfect that was a perfect idea for these little short stories. You don't have to have anything deep. You don't have to do a lot of character development. And that's what I kind of like about this short story. And Abnett and Lanning did a wonderful job here. You know, like I said, I'm not really all that into big Barda, but this was actually one of my more favorite stories in this book. Um, Now we talked about this earlier, but what are Abnett and Lanning doing right now? Um, My understanding is they have split. Okay. They're no longer working as a duo. I know Dan Abnett is working on Dynamite's Battlestar Galactica continuation because I met him at London Super Comic Con. 
nice. where I got to talk to him about it and he signed my issue for me. So he told me what he's got planned coming up for that. Uh, I don't know what Andy Lanning's doing, but it seems that the biggest success has been the Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, so which... whether or not they're going to get a credit on the upcoming Guardians movie, I would imagine they are. Uh, but that's that's primarily what they seem to be known for. Okay, well, you know, I I'm, I was pretty impressed with them because, you know, unfortunately, you know, outside of what the minimal stuff I'm reading now, I don't know about every comic reader, but I was really impressed with it. Do you have any specific notes going through this? Uh, first of all, art-wise, I thought this was Chris Sprouse. Really? Now, what has Sprouse yeah. done? Uh, Chris Sprouse does the more cartoony Legioner stuff, mm-hmm. and I, I swear he's done a Superman annual somewhere on the line. He's got a very Ed McGuinness cartoony comic booky style to his art i always find it really nice and if you took the credits off this i thought this was because he draws people with big noses mm-hmm. so i thought this was was chris sprouse so i was quite surprised to find it was oscar jimenez and some guy i've never heard of before and probably can't pronounce his name eduardo alpuente mm-hmm. i presume uh, my only th- my only note with regarding your synopsis is this uh, t- i didn't read this as he's killed him because in the bottom panel, he's got a dart in his neck. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I see that. That's only being me, me nitpicky with your synopsis. Well, no, I didn't You know, I didn't even see that. You know, I saw Gun, I saw the silencer, and I was like, oh, he's dead. But no, no, looking at that bottom panel, yeah, there is a dart there. So, so yeah, thankfully not murderous criminal. So that's, no. that's a bonus. I loved his line of dialogue on that first page, pop art, <laughs> which was a nice callback to Marvel pop art productions. I know very little about Kyle Rayner. I know he was an artist, but I've read very few comic stories with him in, and they're normally crossovers with other events. But I, I loved his characterization in this, presumably because he's an artist. He has an appreciation of art, and he's trying to convince Big Barda that all of this works and his descriptions of everything, the humanity's aesthetic sensibility and visual expression and creativity. And she's just looking at him like he's a pretentious jerk. Mm-hmm. And I particularly love the bit on page two where she says, Oh, I like the gold part of this one. <laughs> and he's like the frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's nice to see that uh, because this isn't really out of character for Kyle. Kyle, when he is written in the book does know a lot about art and He's he's not quite this pretentious most of the time, but I, I think it works the fact that uh, Kyle's trying to show one of the, you know, kind of the outsider members of the Justice League, someone who's not really uh, attributed with knowing what's going on with Earth, the character of Big Barda, to have her have Kyle bring her into this art museum and show her around. It's a nice uh, it, it makes sense that it would be Kyle doing it. But I, I agree. Kyle just sort of does come off as, you know, a pretentious art student in this but no but that works for the story that they're telling Mm -hmm. because um you've got kyle's doing all this portraiture then look at the subtle balance of light and dark the contrast the quality of the light the dramatic composition and bard is like yeah i like how in this painting the naval commander's deployed his vessels in a spearhead formation it's very resourceful and i just love her cutting him off at the knees Every time he's trying to be a little bit precious about it all, which is not to say that he's not just being enthusiastic about what he's doing and what he's talking about. I mean, you know, people listen to us. We've probably got a bit precious sometimes. But I loved that, that she's just very down to earth and she's actually looking at what's in the work Mm -hmm. rather than what 
it's trying to express. And I especially like an, 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 an I can't speak an animatronic display of warriors when they all come bursting through the door. And he's the bad guy in this has got a really good line. Stay still or everyone's going to look like Jackson Pollock went eight with a can of red paint. The dialogue in it is really, really good. And mm-hmm. I, I really did like this. You know, I'll be honest when I said I'd help you out with the last story. I thought that uh, because everyone else had left this one, we were going to get bottom of the barrel. But this was really fun. Yeah, I was I was very impressed with it as well. Like I've said, the on the prior episode of this, a lot of the stuff that we got was inventory stories that, you know, just basically didn't make the cut for any book. And this actually seems like they got, you know, credible writers and credible artists to come in and do really nice little of 10 page stories. And this is one of the more this is one of the better ones. So I'm glad that you enjoyed this, Uh, you know. When you're writing these small stories, a lot of times they can feel inconsequential, but this doesn't. It it feels like an interesting story that's just couldn't be fit into you know a full Green Lantern book or a full Justice League book. So uh, I I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, well, I can't remember who it was. I think it may have been Curry Bates or Elliot S. Maggin who said, you know, it's brilliant that you can write six issue story arcs. Can you do an eight page story with a beginning, a middle, and an end that makes sense? Mm-hmm. And this proves here that Abnett and Lanning can, because this was just glorious. I love the bit on page 15 where Kyle's like, don't do anything rash. I'll be back in a minute. And then the next panel is a punch in the bad guy in the face. Well, and it falls into the character of Bardas, that she's a, a warrior and Kyle's a, you know, an artist. So uh, throughout the story, Kyle's more, you know, more trying to save the art than trying to save the people. So it's it's nice that you have these two characters with these opposite viewpoints of things and how they're handling the situation. It's it's like I said, this wonderful little 11, 10 page story. So good stuff. Yeah, the action scene is really funny because it is just Kyle. I mean, this is a funny comedy beat you've seen before in plenty of films and TV shows where essentially Bird is just kicking the crap out of the bad guys and he's desperately trying to protect the Ming vase mm-hmm. and desperately trying to protect the expensive picture. And she's all like, the only art I value is the art of battle. <laughs> and it, it's it's nothing you've not seen before, but it's executed so magnificently well. Mm-hmm. And the artwork's really lovely until you get to the end bit. And then Barda essentially turns her back on him to protect the one piece of art that she thinks truly has value, which is the work of a child. Mm-hmm. And it's it's lovely. And it's even offset. There's a wonderful comedy bit at the end where Kyle clubs the bad guy and you've got a, a little Warner Brothers-esque cartoon of somebody hitting him with a 100-pound mallet. <laughs> Well, that's the, you know, since you don't know about it, that's pretty stereotypical for Kyle. He doesn't pull his constructs from the stereo, from the the realm of the Hal Jordan, the giant fist or the scissor constructs. He likes to be a bit more elaborate with his stuff. So in a lot of his constructs, you'll see anime type influences. You'll see giant robots. You'll see uh, cartoony elements. Uh, so this is this is pretty stereotypical, Kyle, but it's it's nice. You know, I don't know who those two characters are, but they do. Yes, look very Looney Tunes there. But yeah, the artwork throughout this is really wonderful. The story is great and it's got a touching little ending that, you know, actually, you know, made me kind of well, not really well up, but made me go, oh, so yeah, it was a lovely little ending mm-hmm. to what was a lovely little story. Uh, definitely. Well, do you have anything else on this? 
No, it was great. Thank you very much for for asking me to join in. Well, I'm I'm glad that you know you're able to do this. I'm glad that you're finally able to come on the show. Um, what since we're done with this, I know it's kind of redundant to tell people where you're from, but uh, why don't you tell people what you're doing on the internet and where they can find you? Uh, Michael and I, who you may have heard in this episode somewhere, do Hey Kids Comics every Thursday, which is all about comics. And whenever I can be bothered, I do a Palace of Glittering Delights, which is the campiest name ever, which is why I like it. <laughs> Luke Giaconetti thinks it sounds like a Chinese restaurant, which I find quite funny. <laughs> and fantastic cast happens whenever Stephen and I get together and record it. And I am a semi-regular co-host on Views from the Long Box. Stick that up, you know, shag. <laughs> oh, unfortunately, we couldn't get Shag for this record. Oh, oh that's a shame. Was he being bad. a diva about his salary again? You know he was. <laughs> you know what he's like. He won't do anything for less than his base rate. See, and his base rate is quite high. See, luckily, I was able to get Rob Kelly pretty much for for you know standard salary. So that's not bad for me. So Rob yeah, Kelly will actually be showing up. We know who's the diva in that relationship, don't we? Definitely. Well, Andy, <laughs> thank you again for coming on. And I'm glad that, you know, despite you just coming on to do a random uh, issue, that it was probably one of the better ones on here. So thanks again. Yeah, it was great. Thank you for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Cheers, exactly. Sean. We can do it on our own. Great news, Bertha. You don't have to. Or Barda. Isn't that what I said? And we don't require your assistance. We appreciate the offer, Flash, but... Unless you've got an S on your chest, you're useless. And we're back to take a look at our next issue, or our next book in this issue. This one is written by Marv Wolfman and called Fallen Idols, and it's a story about Dead Man teaming up with the Green Lantern. And I've also brought along another guest to help me out covering this issue, or covering this story. You may know him from the incredibly fantastic podcast known as The Fantastic Cast. He's not Andrew Leyland. We had him on earlier, so I thought we might as well bring on his co-host, Stephen Lacey, on the show. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for coming on. Hello there. So I'm second to Andy, am I? Okay. Well, I didn't say you were second to Andy, but you're <laughs> just you're following him in progressive order. So I guess technically that makes you second, but not in my heart, Stephen. <laughs> as it should be. Exactly. But we're going to be talking about the story in this book called Fallen Idols, which was written by Marv Wolfman. The artist was George Freeman. The letter was Gaspar Saladino. And the colorist was Lori E. Smith. So while visiting his old college back on the West Coast, Kyle Rayner finds his former professor, Decord, and a young Louis student being held at gunpoint by a campus police officer, I think. Anyhow, the student leaps over the head of the officer, allowing GL time to scoop up Decord and deposit him atop a campus building. Green Lantern heads off and reappears on the rooftop as Kyle Rayner, telling the surprised professor that he's friends with Green Lantern and completely cementing that no one will ever know that Green Lantern and Kyle Rayner are one and the same. Ever. I mean it. Kyle asks about the police situation, and Decord says that they thought he was trying to sell the girl some drugs. Oh, sure, in the past, about 30 minutes ago, the professor did do drugs, probably a lot of them, but he would never sell them. Misunderstanding resolved, Kyle leaves the professor to drive off in his cherry convertible. Immediately after, Kyle is approached by the girl that was with the professor, and she reveals that she's actually possessed by the ghostly hero, Deadman. Boston Brand tells Kyle that Decord really is dealing drugs, and one of his former students is a big-time supplier and Deadman plans on taking him out. 
Meanwhile, the court is visiting said supplier and asking for some protection from the police. But his former student is still holding a grudge that he didn't get the primo sh** back in his college days. The student orders his men to kill the professor, but Green Lantern and Dead Man bust in on the party and try and break things up. In the end, the student shoots the professor, and Dead Man inhabits the student's body, forcing him to call the police and confess. And that ends the story. So, Andy, uh, what do you think about this one? Or, I'm sorry, Steve. I'm not Andy. <laughs> I should look at the you, you will have to forgive me. It is very early in the morning for me, unfortunately, because of the time difference. Steven, what do you think about this one? It's a bit bland. Yeah. Uh, um, my biggest thing was I got to the end of the story and I went, so where was the dead man I recognize? This one seems to be a very vengeance fueled mm-hmm. there was there was no real investigation that you know from what i know of dead man he's sort of uh the the ghostly and analog to batman and this doesn't seem like him in any way mm, yeah there's none of the i always associate a bit of a sense of humor with him i always think of um when dead man turns up in kevin smith's green arrow possesses etrigan and the first thing he does is Snog Black Canary, <laughs> um, which is you know there is humor involved in what he does, and other than the accent, um, which doesn't really come out, it's when they're sitting down and discussing something and go, "You'll listen with L I S E N." There's just very little that I see of Dead Man. There's not even any body swapping, like when it's uh, except for the very end. Mm-hmm. And and there's weird stuff like I, I, I expect a bit more from Marv Wolfman, but the idea that um, when Deadman isn't possessing somebody, people can hear him. That's not how Deadman works. He possesses people to make that connection to our world. Unless I've missed something in all my years of reading, but I don't think I have. It just seems... Yeah. Yeah, I, I will... This is kind of the thing that I got from this. In these 80-page giants, the last one that I covered was a succession of very much inventory stories. It felt like these were stories that had been sitting on a shelf for a long time, and they just pulled them together to do that 180-page giant. This one, except for this a story, has felt like all new stuff, but this is the one that really feels like it, that, that kind of reeks of inventory. It feels out of mm-hmm. place. The fact that we've never had mention of Kyle ever going to college, I mean... Yeah, I was thinking that. So when did Kyle go to college? Yeah, you, you could make an assumption that since he's a professional artist, he may have had to do some training, so he may have taken some classes in college, but it's never been mentioned before. So this this feels more like something that would be attributed to Hal Jordan <laughs> in his youth, especially because the story is dealing with drug use and uh uh, mm. people selling drugs so it seems out of place for kyle it seems like something that this would have been more suited for an o'neill adams run or that era with uh well, they, Jordan green lantern they even use the word snowbird mm-hmm. um which i never really thought of as a drug reference and it's like okay i can see how it is but then they were using snowbirds as a drug reference in 1970 mm-hmm. or 71 would anyone really be using it nowadays no i d- and, and it, I, I say nowadays, the end of the nineties. Yeah, it does. It, it does seem very out of place in this time. So for, it's the one story that feels, like I said, inventory esque in this issue, which is kind of sad because the rest of the stories in this book have been, you know, have been actually pretty good. And the fact that Marv Wolfman is behind it, you know, just is kind of disappointing. The art is, 
average. But again, you know, when you're talking about these 80 page giants with the little short 10 page stories, you know, you're not expecting, you know, the best artwork out there. But mm. overall, it's just a, a kind of marginal story and really not my favorite in the book. Yeah, I mean, I've never heard of George Freeman before. And I know that the 80 page giants are often opportunities to give people a tryout. You know, they've got 10 pages rather than a full issue. Um, uh, also, sort of the big names also use that opportunity to try and work with characters they might not have worked with otherwise. Um, but yeah, this the artwork looks very nondescript. Um, quite, I don't like the term house star, but this is what I'd expect from a sort of lower tier DC comic from the late nineties. Nothing special at all. It just feels like it feels like Dead Man's completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, un- unfortunately, he's not really very well used in the issue. Uh, there was actually oh. an issue of Green Lantern specific where Dead Man was uh, incredibly effective. It was him dealing with the uh, uh, a person who was murdering his uh, ex-wife who uh, came out to be a lesbian. And it was a really actually very compelling story. This in this one, Dead Man is just woefully underused. And I agree very much out of character. Yeah, I mean, there's only two points in this where you actually had things happen in the story that only Dead Man could do. That so there's a towards the end where he takes over Carl's body and basically um, gives this whole other circus imagery through Carl's constructs for a couple of panels, and then at the very end where he takes over um, the student Charles's body and confesses over the phone, which I bet that confession wouldn't hold up at all. But other than that, you know, the, the girl that he takes over could just be the girl looking for revenge without Dead Man at all. And we're not even we're not even privy to whether that was the truth. You know, it's her character is so underdeveloped in the story. Yeah. Granted, it's a short story, but they could have at least had some sort of mention of that to make the readers understand why Dead Man was possessing her. So, yeah, uh, overall, just not a good entry in this book. Yeah, it's unfortunate when you uh, contacted the whole over and said, hey, I've got this 8 page giant, who wants to do which story? Let's have some guests. And I went, oh, Dead Man, brilliant. I'll jump in on that. Because mm-hmm. um, my first choice already been given away. But um, <laughs> I thought, yeah, the, yeah, Dead Man's always an interesting concept. Um, even in the New 52, there had been some really interesting stuff with him, like his uh, strange relationship with Dove uh, that was sort of there in the first eight to ten months before Hawk and Dove were lethaled to death. <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that I'm gonna take that phrase and use that as often as I can. He <laughs> it to death. But um, here we just he barely gets going, and that that's a shame. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to go back and read. Was it '93? Uh, uh, the issue where he was with Carl, because that's footnoted. I believe so. It's it's the one it's the one where the cover is Kyle standing in an alley over a dead body. I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, uh, I remember it now. It's it's a Halloween episode. It's 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 very good. And Dead Man, I think, is far truer to form in that book than he is in here. It's it's kind of sad. They they do at least mention in the book that Kyle and Dead Man did have uh, interaction prior to this, so that was kind of nice. But yeah, like I said, not not Marv Wolfman's best entry, and unfortunately, not this book's best entry either. Yeah, it just seems like, oh, we got ten pages, let's draw a hero out of the hat. Dead man, right, put him into this generic drug story. Mm-hmm. Go. And Mob Wolf is going, well, I wanted to buy... <laughs> yeah, uh, not an iPod, that's way too early. I wanted <laughs> to buy a mini-disc player. Yes, I wanted so to buy a mini-disc. <laughs> the fee for this will cover <laughs> the cost of that. 
Oh, sad. Well, do you have anything else on that, or are you, are you pretty good with this? I mean, not good with yeah. enjoying it, but good with being done. I mean, short and sweet. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, well, well it, it's been nice to come back. And, and just, this is for the listeners, Sean, I hope you leave this in. Um, last time I was on the show, we, we spent a long time talking about DC One Million. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have to say, Sean, because I think this is the first time we've spoken since then. Yes, it is. So, this is also my personal saying thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I was incredibly surprised when um, Andy got in contact with me to ask how I wanted to receive an omnibus. And I went, what? <laughs> I went, well, I've got this omnibus for you. And I went, what? And then he explained what was going on. So I think he kind of uh, let the cat out of the bag a little bit. But you, you've sent me a copy of the DC One Million Omnibus. And thank you so very much for that. It's been phenomenal. I'm about halfway through. It was a bit of a struggle reading through the Azrael issue. Um, oh, really? That was kind of... Hmm. That's because it's Azrael. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't want to skip either. So I, I've been taking it slowly. But I, I'm about halfway through reading the entire crossover its entirety for the first time ever and it's just phenomenal i'm glad you're um, enjoying it. It, it, it are you know you mentioned uh, in a like a, a facebook post that you're wondering you know how much of the stuff that you got wrong are, are you was your memory holding up with most of the stuff and a lot of the batman and justice league stuff which i'd never read i was sort of taking guesses at but i'm pleased to see where i've read like the green lantern bits and the martian manhunter and the superman and the main series i'm pleased to see that holding up as well as i remember it yeah, I, um, I'm I'm actually putting a, a lot of serious thought into getting that because that you know uh, I got you sealed copies and I was like I want to yeah. open the seal and just take a look at it. But I'm glad you're enjoying that, Stephen. I really appreciated you coming on and I that was a blast doing that show with you. And I'm glad that it, despite the fact that this wasn't the uh, best story in this comic, that I at least got back to uh, talk with you again. No, as I say, short and sweet, but uh, it was nice to be back on the show. Okay, well, thank you again for Stephen. Let's uh, thank you again, thank Stephen, you. for coming on. Uh, do you want to go ahead and plug the kind of stuff that you're doing on the internet nowadays? Oh yes, um, the Fantastic Hour still continues. We're approaching our hundredth episode, which is quite astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I think if you'd asked Andy and myself when we first started it, we, we would have had that's about getting that far. But yeah, we, we're approaching our hundredth episode. Um, if this is released at the time you're suggesting it'll be released our most recent episode will be our coverage of fantastic four annual number six which is the first appearance of annihilus and the birth of franklin richards it's a, a really strong annual uh, it's also i think one of the strongest episodes we've put out because we got on as a special guest al kennedy of the house of astonish podcast which is just one of the best comic book podcasts out there so good that uh comics should be good over at comic resources ask them to join up with them and release wow. the podcast through them and uh yeah the sort of three hours we had sitting with uh al was just one of the funniest things ever um so yeah if you've uh, been away from the show you've heard about us and thought well i don't know where to start with it grab that one episode and listen along because you'll i, I think you'll be laughing a lot it, it, i can't wait to share it with you all i can't wait to listen to it steven thank you again for coming on the show and thank you for doing the fantastic ass and we will catch you around next time thank you sean take care I know you are here, Boston Brand. What's the point of being a flipping ghost if you can't even sneak up on people? Okay, and we're ready to take a look at our next issue, or I guess our story in this uh, episode. This one is the Guy Gardner story, and to come along to talk about this is a person that, well is kind of a first-timer for this podcast. He's done podcasting before. He does a couple of podcasts over at Bureau 42, one about the X-Files, where he's covering the entirety of the X-Files, which I think is supposed to be taking him up into the 2020s when he's going to finish it up. Plus, he's also doing a uh, podcast called Big Screen Batman, where he's taking a look at all of the Batman movies, including the serials, 
the animated movie Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and even the Holly Berry Catwoman movie, which is going to be an interesting endeavor for him to take into. And he's also done a few guest spots over at Dave's Daredevil podcast, which I really enjoyed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure for me to welcome on the show W. Blaine Dowler. How's it doing, Blaine? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on here, Sean. I'm glad to have you on. I appreciate you coming on to do the Guy Gardner story. Now, uh, what what kind of uh, history do you have with Guy? Did, did you read him? Uh, did you read him during when he was coming out? Are you a fan of his, or are you a fan of Green Lantern in general? I became one, not as they were coming out. Okay. So my first introduction to Green Lantern was actually through my fandom for Larry Niven. Oh, cool. The, so. the Ganthet's Tale storyline, maybe? Yeah, that. that was that that one shot that was uh, plotted by Niven and mm-hmm. scripted and penciled by Byrne. I found out about that in the late 90s or early 2000s, so well after it had been released. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of my gateway drug to the Green Lantern universe. From there, the next thing I was able to pick up were just a couple of trades because I enjoyed it. By sheer dumb luck, they were Emerald Twilight and New Dawn. And I am thankful I bought both at once because... Had I just started with Emerald Twilight, I'm not sure I would have kept going. No, I I can understand that because, yeah, when you get the downfall of Hal Jordan and that's the end, that is kind of a, well, it's kind of a downer issue. So I can understand when you get a new dawn and getting the new character in would be something that would keep you interested in the Green Lantern mythos. It is, yeah. And that's why Kyle Rayner is my favorite Green Lantern to date and actually my second favorite DC character overall. Well, that's great. Well, yeah, I'm, since I'm, then, I've really gone into Green Lantern. So in the past decade or so, I've actually accumulated everything but Circle of Fire. So I've got, starting with the Showcase Presents, I've got Green Lantern from Showcase 22 up until today. Wow. Circle of Fire has just been either unobtainable or more than I want to pay for single issues that may be reprinted at some point in the future. See, that's the disappointing thing. I haven't found that they're reprinting much from this era. I have found like on Comixology, they're releasing more of the uh, 90s run with uh, Gerard Jones working into the Ron Mars run, but I haven't seen Circle of Fire show up yet. Uh, And that's one of the ones that I'm trying to track down as well because it's coming up pretty soon and in my recording schedule. So uh, I hope, hopefully you'll be able to get that. And, you know, if you start listening to the show or, you know, now that you are listening to the show, you can follow along. That'll be cool. Yeah. I have been listening, but as I said, before the recording started it, I started listening to the show when I found out about it a little under two months ago. I'd have been going through two episodes a week to make sure I will eventually catch up. So in my listening, I'm, I'm actually halfway through Emerald Dawn two. Okay. Well, that's so, uh, you know, like I said, the, Hopefully it gets better. <laughs> but um, uh, thanks for coming on to do this. We're going to be, like I said, we're going to be talking about the Guy Gardner story in this 80-page giant. And this one is entitled Everybody Goes to Guys. The writer here was Chuck Dixon. It was penciled by Andy Kuhn. The anchor was Jose Marsan Jr. The colorist was Noel Giddings. And the letter was Willie Schubert. And the story goes like this. The story opens with a Wildcats reject being tossed out the window of the Warriors bar by none other than owner Guy Gardner himself. After having Lady Blackhawk call in the window replacement firm, Guy tells the visiting patron Kyle Rayner, aka Green Lantern, why he's sporting the Casablanca look. Guy says it's to give the place a sense of class, as well to cover up his awesome tattoos. After a brief 
distraction of a bratty kid demanding to get he get a souvenir from Guy's treasure hunting days, Guy sits down with Kyle and Lady Blackhawk to shoot the breeze. But while Guy chats up about his clientele, the terrible tyke breaks into the display case and nabs the Rubik's orb and causes the spectral demon Kragadoom, okay, to appear. The green Goliath starts to smash up the place, and while Guy and Kyle try to reorder the puzzle, Sphere, in order to suck him back inside. Eventually, before the bar gets destroyed this week, Guy and Kyle solve the puzzle since Kyle's grandfather was one of the people with Borgo who discovered the Sphere. And genetics, I guess. Crisis averted, Guy tells Lady Blackhawk to politely escort the rest of the patrons out and lock up the night. And what kind of uh, notes do you have in this story? Um, a lot of it here, I really like the way Chuck Dixon is able to play the two characters off each other and really showcase the difference between Guy and Kyle. And as you said, there is a definite Casablanca riff here, not just with you know, the look of the suit like Bogart was wearing, but just you know, one of the early lines in Casablanca is everybody goes to Rick's. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the uh, if I'm recalling, the actual novel that Casablanca was uh, based off of was called Everybody Goes to Rick's. I'm, if I'm remembering, it's been a long time since I've watched a lot of the stuff on uh, the back matter on Casablanca, but I think that's the case as well. Personally, for me, I love Chuck Dixon, and I'm glad that Chuck Dixon got to write a Guy Gardner story as Guy Gardner Warrior, because if I'm thinking he wrote Guy Gardner when he was in his, uh, you know, sort of leather jacket and Sinestro wing phrase, but he never got to write him as Warrior. So it's nice. It's nice to have him do this. Plus, Chuck Dixon is always just an exemplary writer and he does great stories. He is. As I said, Kyle Rayner is my second favorite character in the DCU. Chuck Dixon is one of the big reasons that Dick Grayson is number one. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know Dixon's run on Robin is just some of the best stuff out there. And I I have yet to read a story by Chuck Dixon that wasn't at least enjoyable and at most just incredibly great. Yeah, and that's where I came in through. It was actually not the Robin run, but the Nightwing run Mm -hmm. that got me in there. Oh, that's that's even better. Um, Moving on. Going, I don't have all that many page-by-page page notes, but I do like uh, the opening splash where even Guy can't stand villains from the 90s. And this this is a horrible 90s villain here. He's crashing through the window. It's just... The, there is there is a bit of 90s excess, and that kind of ties in with Guy as Warrior because, well, the Warrior was definitely a thing in the 90s. They were trying to catch in on the 90s feel, and that guy is tossing this guy out the window. It's, it just amused me. It is, especially for a, a late 90s issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, this issue did come out April 28th, 99. So it was at the, the tail end of that era for sure. Okay. Which also puts it about four or five months ahead of Day of Judgment, which was the weekly series that you know would have made a had that come out first, we would have had a slightly different read on the the line where a guy says, well, the specter came in here once mm-hmm. and that guy's creepy. Well, so. well, that, that's true. And I, I, that's another thing that I liked about this story is the conversational aspect about it between guy, Kyle and lady Blackhawk, them just sitting around and kind of 
just talking like normal people. This doesn't have to necessarily be an action-filled book. You know, it can be just people talking. And I like Chuck Dixon's dialogue. Uh, the fact that the DC universe has essentially a like a place like the Brown Derby or Club Fifty Four or something like that, where superheroes can just come and hang out, really. It, it, it sort of grounds it. it. It gives the it gives it a more sense of reality, which I really like. It does. It's right up there with the baseball issues of the X Men. Mm-hmm. When you see the characters in their off in their off hours, you get a, a much better feel for what they're doing. And I really like what he's got in here. I mean, the, the Casablanca references are the more obvious ones. If you're familiar with that, as some of us are, having been named after the lead character, mm-hmm. then you know it it really does play nicely. There's another one. I'm not sure if it's deliberate or not, but even when he says he's trying to attract a new clientele, no riffraff or gawkers. I can't believe it's coincidence that that is verbatim the line that John Cleese's character speaks in Faulty Towers. (laughs) Even when he puts out the ad that says no riffraff. I wouldn't be surprised. I would think Chuck Dixon was probably knowledgeable about the TV show Faulty Towers and probably would have put that in there as well. I didn't even catch that, but now now that you mention it, yeah, that's that's pretty apparent. It is. And to me that's that that to me has always been the fundamental difference between Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Guy Gardner is the character who up until recently, when he's built the experience to back it up, his aspirations have always exceeded his skill set. Mm-hmm. So he's always, you know, like trying to be part of the JLI as the leader before he takes on Batman. Everything about him is you know, he's got no fear. He will go for the gold. He doesn't care, even though he's not ready for it yet in a lot of cases. And that's what we're seeing here. He's trying to build a new clientele and trying to have a more respectable establishment. Who does he have for clients? Plastic Man and the Blue Beetle. They're the <laughs> only other characters that we recognize here. And it's nothing against them. They're very entertaining characters. But, you know, Superman never stays long. Batman never shows up at all. They make a point about how he's not getting to the upper end of clientele in terms of even his peer group. Now, Carl Rayner on the flip side, he's the guy who had no aspirations and he got thrown into it mm-hmm. in the pre pre new 52 days. As this is, he was the guy chosen at random. He was the green lantern who knew exactly what fear was and had to overcome it more as a survival than as the natural instinct you get from guy Gardner, the stereotypical gym teacher or Hal Jordan, your test pilot right he was the guy who's perfectly happy to sit in his apartment and draw but now he's got the responsibility and he has to rise to the challenge so his skill set and his responsibilities are way beyond his aspirations whereas guy was the flip of that and we see that here we see guy gardner is the one through most of the fight the guy is the one who's going for the physical solution first and kyle's the one who says okay he came out of this puzzle that probably means if we solve this puzzle we can put him back in well, and I like that. Uh, I like that part about that—that that they have that kind of balance. That we have the the physicality and strength and sort of go in and punch them attitude of guy, while you've got the intelligence and sort of trying to work things out aspect that we have in Kyle. So that's a nice catch on the sort of you know yin and yang of these two characters that are linked by both of them having you know, relations to being a Green Lantern. So that's that's an that's a really great take on that. You know, you should be doing this show. You're putting in far more, far more thought and uh, you know intellectual ideas into this than I do. I'm just like, oh, the pictures are pretty. <laughs> yeah, come. But, 
Uh, but oh, do you have any uh, do you have any comments on the arts? Uh, you know, uh, let me get back to who did this, who did the art here? Andy Kuhn, I believe. Andy Kuhn. You know, I'm not yeah. really familiar with his stuff, but it's it's decent cartoony art, and I think with mm-hmm. these 80 page giants where you're getting people to do sort of like small, tiny one shot stories. The artwork isn't bad, uh, you know, and they actually pulled in some pretty good uh, writers and artists to come do this. I know later on we get more Mar- Wolfman in the book. We get uh, Abnett and Lanning doing stuff. So mm-hmm. I- I'm 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 satisfied with it for an 80 page giant. I am. It's his is not a name that jumps out at me, but it it is very reminiscent of Scott McDaniel style. Mm-hmm. Chuck Dixon had a lot of time working with back in that Nightwing series that we were talking about before. Yeah. So it is a style he's used to adapting to and he knows how to play it. And for a story like this, which at least on the surface is just pretty much straight light up or light comedy. It's a style that works well. I mean, this is not a style that would be conducive to say a Punisher Max book. No, but a story like this, where, as you say, it is cartoony. So the characters can get exaggerated and go off model you look at Guy Gardner, he's got a surprisingly small mouth drawn on him, considering how much of him is mouth <laughs> when he's actually going through. But that's a lot of times it's, you know, this well in the striking, he's not that terribly intelligent as it is here, at least not the way he's re- regarded. And it's not that he doesn't have the intelligent capability. It's just that's not his first instinct. You really need to push Guy before he decides he needs to stop and think about things. He'd rather just, you know, beat you down in one punch and keep going. Whereas Kyle, we get that very wide mouth in the art from the beginning because he's the one that's mostly smiling through it. Mm -hmm. And that's another change in what we get here. Before the battle starts, Kyle is smiling and Guy's not really there. He's got a bit of a a fake smile on when he's talking to the kid with the, the big puckered corners of the mouth when he's saying that's not for sale. These are souvenirs. But that's about it. And as you're getting into the fight, Kyle stops smiling. And, you know, Guy grits his teeth as his suit gets stripped away and all you get are the tattoos and the colorings. He never really seems happy in this role at any point. He's, you know, trying to make something of himself, but he's not really enjoying it. It's not a terribly good fit for him. Whereas Kyle is when they're just talking. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I can. I think that plays to the character of Guy that he'd rather be out there, you know, having action adventures, beating up monsters and stuff like that, while Kyle is simply happy just, you know, having conversations with people and, you know, not having to do the superheroics all the time. And But I see mm-hmm. what you're saying, you know. At the beginning, Guy doesn't feel like the whole dressing up and putting on a show is who he is. And I think that's why, you know, this, this interlude with this strange demon coming in is, is the thing that is actually probably a good thing for him because, you know, this is more in line of what he wants to do. Yeah. And the, the art, there is a nice little touch. I think as the suit gets stripped away more and more guys getting more and more comfortable with his role Mm -hmm. and what he's doing, it gets more and more into the set. So it's, it's almost like the artist is telling us guy is not, meant to be a businessman he's meant to be a warrior mm-hmm. of some kind whether it's an emerald warrior or you know the vanadian warrior doesn't really matter yeah 
he needs to be in the thick of it before he's actually going to be happy with his life. I can agree with that. Well, do you have uh do you have anything else you want to say about the book? I think I've pretty much covered, you know, my notes. Uh, what did you think about it overall? Overall, it is yeah, it is a, a decent story, a decent book in terms of the collection. Although I admit I haven't reread the other stories this week. It's been a while since I read these originally. Mm-hmm. Well, it's <laughs> you know, like I say, for these eighty-page giants, very often. And I can attest to this, the last 80-page giant that I did last week was completely filled to the brim with what would be classified generally as inventory stories. That stories that felt really out of place and you know probably sat on shelves for quite some time. These stories in this book at least feel like they're original, you know, currently written stories that that you know they got some good creators to come in on it so it's actually been pretty enjoyable so far so yeah the the short little stories you don't get much development it's it's kind of akin to you know a, a mcdonald's cheeseburger it's filling it kind of tastes good but it's not something that you know you want to have it's not it's not it's not a good steak it's something just to kind of whet your appetite and give you something to keep you going for a while so i liked it yeah well that's that description is kind of why i haven't had a mcdonald's cheeseburger since shortly before this was published <laughs> but uh, no, it's, i did enjoy it but it's it's a nice little eight pager as i said it's when you've got a writer with the strength of chuck dixon who knows how to work with an artist of this type mm-hmm. it can work well because he is he is good at characterization but he's He's prone to the detective and the mystery things, which are a lot of plot and not so much character. So he's really got to show the characters in context. And that's what we're seeing here. We do get the dichotomy between them right? as they're going through and taking down Krag of Doom. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was very enjoyable. Oh, great. And it, yeah, it plays up nicely to Dixon's strengths, where for the character side, it's show, don't tell, focus on the plot. Exactly. Well, and uh, when these little short stories, unfortunately, character does kind of have to be sidelined for, you know, plot elements and action scenes. So that's that's understandable in these shorter type stories. Well, Blaine, uh, thank you for being a part of this. This was just one of these things I kind of thought up, you know, on on the spur of the moment and put it out on Facebook to see who'd who'd bite and be willing to do this. And I'm glad that I finally got a chance to talk with you and talk to you about this comic. Oh, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm always willing to talk about GL. Awesome. Well, uh, would you like to go ahead and uh, do a little plugging of some of the things you're doing out there on the Internet? Let people know how they can get in touch with you and where they can find your work. Yeah, uh, most of my stuff you can find through Bureau42.com where we write both text and do podcasts. So that's where I do a Math from Scratch series where I'm building all of math from scratch in one lesson a month that comes out on the first of every month. There's the big screen Batman series Sean has also mentioned, which started last year as Silver Screen Superman to celebrate his 75th anniversary. This year, it's the 75th anniversary of Batman. Next year, it becomes just Silver Screen Superheroes, comes out on the 14th of every month. There's the X-Files Retrospective podcast coming out every two weeks, which started on the 20th anniversary of the series. And there's the Comic Book Physics podcast, which comes out the last Wednesday of every month, where I discuss physics in the context of comic books and some of the suggestions I've had do tie directly into Green Lantern. There's also a master audio feed that has all of them in one spot, as well as our greatest science fiction film tournament and TV tournament podcasts that are coming out. 
And if you dig through the archives, you can find a Doctor Who 50 and 50, where I did 50 podcasts about the classic Doctor Who ending on the 50th anniversary. And all of those are available through Bureau 42, iTunes, and Stitcher. Awesome. Well, Blaine, once again, thanks for coming on and doing this. And uh, definitely go check out all the stuff over at Bureau 42. Good stuff there. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Once again, Guy Gardner, the ginger Green Lantern, saves the day with an assist from some other Green Lantern. Some other? You really should check your facts. I am the only Green Lantern of... Green Lantern of... Hey, better get back there. As for Earth, when trouble calls, Guy Gardner picks up. And it's time to take a look at our next story. And this one is The Lantern's Apprentice, and it's written by Mark Wade, and it features Impulse. And the person that I'd peg to come help me talk about this story is the person that you should know from Back to the Bins, uh, as well as a recent Star Trek episode, Listen to the Prophets and Star Trek Enterprise, which we did last month over at the Tutor Freaks website for Assistant Editors Month. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome the first time on the show, Mr. Paul Spataro. How's it going, Paul? It's going great. Thanks for having me on, Sean. I'm glad to have you on. I'm glad we're going to be talking about this this little story here. Uh, now, uh, what is your what is your relationship with Green Lantern, specifically this Green Lantern, Kyle Rayner? Do you did you read any of this when it was coming out? I did not read this specific issue when it came out, but uh, I. I guess my first introduction, as with many people, to the Green Lantern would have been from the Super Friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't recall seeing the actual filmation Green Lantern cartoons, although it's possible I may have. But that's the first time I recall being conscious of him. And, you know, Hal Jordan was actually my Green Lantern, being, you know, old and all. Uh, oh. <laughs> well, but I mean, when I was in my comics heyday, you know, Hal Jordan was the guy. And uh, I, I remember being a little taken aback when all of a sudden he showed up with uh you know nick fury or reed richards uh you know stripes on the side of his head uh, well well you and, know that the stripes the they were there because he was parallax that's what jeff Johns says because in in rebirth you know when he came back and you know when he got rid of parallax the stripes went away so the stripes were there because of parallax yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I mean I guess they came to the thought process when they put the stripes on there that you know Hal Jordan was going to be you know roughly in his forties at that point. That's that's the way I always interpreted it. Mm-hmm. See, and you know, I, he, I I I like that. I like that about him, and I like that they made his character a bit more mature. That didn't, that never bothered me. And it all, it did kind of bother me when Jeff Johns sort of retconned it to be, you know, the, the stripes or the sort of graying of his temples was, you know, because he went evil or because he was possessed, you know, no, it's just because he's maturing and he's becoming a more nuanced character and he's had plenty of adventures. So yeah, that, that bugged me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, it, some retcons are fine and some of them just, you know, it's it's just uh, making up an excuse to try and get rid of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, I, I I was there through the whole, you know, death of Superman thing, and uh, you know his his final turn in uh, what was it, Final Night? Yeah. Well, the, no, in uh, Emerald Twilight or Emerald Dawn, not Emerald Dawn. Uh, Emerald Twilight was yeah, the story that he, yeah, Emerald yeah, Emerald Twilight was the story that he 
you know, had his downfall in and where no, but I'm talking, well, final oh, night was actually his, uh, Oh, his, when he his, redeemed, he, he made, he made good. He sacrificed himself to, yeah, to save relight him. the sun. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, he became the specter and then that's when they brought in Kyle. And I, you know, I was reading it at the time. So I was getting the Kyle issues as they came out. Okay. Uh, what did, when did Kyle come in? Was it issue 50? He was, he, he Technically, he appeared as sort of like just a character in issue 48, if you want to be specific. But yeah, he his first iteration in Green Lantern, as Green Lantern, was at issue 50. Well, and, technically 49, because, well, no, 50, because that's when Hal went bizarre and, you know, Ganthet gave the ring to Kyle in the back alley, which is where you want to find, you know, immense uh, willful power, you know, thingies, <laughs> back alley of some par. Yeah, but even though Kyle, even though Hal was technically my my Green Lantern, I kind of always liked the idea of Kyle, especially early on, mm-hmm. when you know he didn't know how to deal with this power and he didn't know how to deal with the ring and he had to recreate a uh, a battery, and and just a lot of it went to and I think it's going to be part of my take on this story that that we're going over. But it went to like the childhood fantasies that you'd have reading these books of, you know, what would I do if I had one of these rings? Mm-hmm. And and I liked how they played with him, you know, that he was a comic artist. So he had, you know, slightly more uh, vivid imagination than the average person. And, and therefore, you know, his constructs would also reflect that greater imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And that, it also gives, you know, the artist... You know, or an opportunity to to draw more than just your generic thing. It's like boxing gloves and scissors and the not really simple constructs, but the not as elaborate constructs that Hal Jordan would be doing. It allows Kyle to do these more vivid graphic things like giant monsters and these sort of anime type robots. So that was always fun reading that in these books. I seem to remember at the time, too, they they also had the challenge of having him not use the same construct twice. Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of an edict set out by editorial for the book. And that in my read through of that, I've seen in general, that's the same. We've, we've had constructs that have been very similar, but uh, I think that was kind of an edict that they wanted to put forward that, you know, no, he can't use the same construct, you know, more than once. So, but you know, that, that just uh, gives the artist, kind of an impetus to be a bit more creative, which is, which yeah. in my opinion is always a good thing. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the way I saw it. And, and, and I liked how they played with the character, how he had to, you know, meet up with all the heroes and earn their trust. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's a fun uh, time to watch that whole development. You know, the downside to it is sooner or later you have to move on and have him be experienced because you just can't keep writing these beginner stories, these, you know, novice rookie stories for the character forever. Uh, so eventually, you know, you, you do tend to fall into a similar rut. The new life that's created in the character eventually has to, uh, you know, settle into a more, uh, standard storyline eventually. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, that's what I've, I've really enjoyed in, in my read through of these comics is, is watching the sort of inexperienced Kyle grow from that novice hero, really not knowing what he's supposed to be doing, but doing his best at it to this person who's, uh, if not an equal, maybe even greater than the previous lanterns of Hal Jordan and Guy Gardner and John Stewart, the Earth based lantern. So, you know, it's it's been a fun, fun chance of reading through this character. And I think it's uh, it's really grown. 
you know, senses, senses and perception in uh, issue 50. But, and I have to say a lot of the, a lot of the books you've covered, I haven't had a chance to read, but uh, I've enjoyed listening to your coverage on them just the same. Oh, cool. I appreciate that. I hope, I hope eventually you do get a chance to read them because there are some really good stories in there and some really good artwork. And, you know, it, it's overall, it's just fun watching sort of, you know, a lot of people have called him an analogous to Peter Parker over in Marvel. You know, this person who got amazing powers you know, and is just trying to deal with it. And it's, it's interesting watches his growth in the comics. So I've, I've been, I'm glad you're enjoying it and I'm glad that, you know, I'm looking at it as well. Well, in particular, I enjoyed the episode where you dedicated it to me. Oh yes. Well, that was, I, I thought that was, you know, your crowning achievement. Well, I think, <laughs> you know, if, if I can ever make sure that uh, you're involved in, in any way with the show, I, I want to make sure that I can do that. <laughs> I I did get a kick out of it for what it was worth. <laughs> but um uh this issue or this story that we're going to be taking a look at like I said is uh written by Mark Wade. It's called The Lantern's Apprentice. The penciler for it is Mike McCone, the inker is Andy Lanning, the letterer is Pat Prentice and the colorist is Matt Webb. And it goes like this. In the heart of New York City, big-headed freak Hector Hammond is causing a ruckus as Green Lantern Kyle Rayner attempts to take him down. Luckily, or maybe not, the youthful speedster Impulse makes the scene and attempts to help Kyle out. Unfortunately, Impulse distracts GL long enough to allow Hammond to control his mind and almost get him zapped. Fortunately, since Hammond didn't get to complete his mind whammy on Green Lantern, Impulse is effectively able to control Kyle like a ring-wielding Siri. Taking delight in being able to make Kyle whip up whatever he wants, Impulse eventually, after a few minor setbacks, takes out the colossal cranium criminal, freeing Green Lantern from the mind control. Crisis averted, Kyle allows Impulse a chance to use the ring constructs on his own, by cleaning up the mess he made in the city. And I, I've got to say, I really enjoyed this, you know... It shouldn't surprise me with Mark Wade writing it, and it does kind of surprise me that they've gotten such talented writers and talented artists to do these little ten-page stories in a, these eighty-page giants. Most of the time, you think of these, you know, offshoot books like this as being just a either a dumping ground for inventory stories or sort of a tryout book for artists who aren't quite ready for doing an ongoing series. But to get Mark Wade and Mike McCone in to do uh, the story and art is just kind of a triumph. And this is really a fun story to read. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I had a lot of fun reading this one. Uh, and and this goes to exactly what I was just saying before. This this is kind of like the the childhood uh, way of looking at it. You know, you basically have Impulse, who's pretty much an embodiment of childish immaturity, which is they mm-hmm. even touch on in, in the book saying how he's appropriately named. Uh, and he gets basically his own pet green lantern or genie as he thinks of him. And it's almost like, well, what would you do if you had a green lantern ring? And, you know, now you have impulse there, you know, testing his own uh, theories as to what kind of constructs he would come up with. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just fun to kind of hit on it that way. And, and you know, Impulse was, at least when he was first introduced, was a pretty fun character, I thought. I know Mark Wade wrote a lot of his early series. And, uh, you know, uh, of course, Mark Wade is specifically knows writing a great run on The Flash. So he's got a, a knack for these speedster characters. And I, I agree, I'm not 
that knowledge i'm not as knowledgeable about impulse from this era as i am like wally west is the flash but mm-hmm. i i love the sort of sort of immature almost generation y feel of him it's just a bunch of fun i'm looking here at the, the not really the splash page but the titles page where impulse is thinking about what he can do with the mind control lantern and i think this is common in a lot of the impulse books he gets the thought balloon with the x over hector hammond's head and the kyle as the almost arabian knights looking genie that's just <clears throat> it's just so much fun yeah exactly that's 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 how i looked at it and and the artwork complements it really well mm-hmm. this you know mccone is, is the perfect artist for this kind of story Except, you know, uh, the first shot he has of Hammond, I thought it looked like, uh, so like he borrowed Gil Kane's arm to draw that. Yeah. See, I'm, Which I'm, I, and I love Gil Kane, don't get me wrong. No, no, <laughs> I actually, actually, I'm kind of glad that Kyle got to take on Hector Hammond because very rarely has Kyle been able to take on a classic Green Lantern foe. I think they, in the stories, they wanted to try and give Kyle his own rogues gallery. And for the most part, they were kind of woefully inadequate. I really like the fact that Kyle is having to take on Hector Hammond, who is, you know, a quintessential, you know, Silver Age Green Lantern foe. And I, I you know, anytime you've got a guy, a balding, big headed freak taking on a superhero, that just makes me happy. Me too, but. Okay. And that was probably my only criticism of this particular book is Hector Hammond should be a very, very serious threat. And he's disposed of too easily in this book. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's my only problem with it. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the disservice that this story has being only a 10 or 11 page story is that you can't really get the kind of threat that you would get if this were you know, an ongoing, if Hector Hammond did show up in the actual Green Lantern series, because you could take that out and make it, you know, a three, or if you wanted to write for the trade, as they sometimes do now, make it a six-issue thing and have that fun. Because I know uh, back in the early part of the Green Lantern book, they had a team up with Green Lantern and the Wally West Flash, Hal Jordan, and they actually teamed up to fight Gorilla Grodd and Hector Hammond. And they did that in a two-issue story. Well, no, I think it was a four-issues that ran between Green Lantern and Flash, and that was really fun. Uh, yeah, I do agree with you. It, it does do a big disservice to him that uh, you know he's he's given such a short amount of time to to do his villainy, and he is kind of in a way mo- made like a fool. Especially, I'm looking on page fifty here where Kyle puts him in the uh, ring construct cannon. And mm-hmm. shoots him off. That's that's just. I hate to say it. I don't know if you've ever watched Pokemon. No. <laughs> okay. Well, there's this scene in Pokemon. There's these these two characters called Team Rocket, and I guess they're either brother and sister or uh, they're dating. I don't know. It depends upon whether you're watching the Japanese or the American version. But pretty much in every episode. Something happens to them where they get blasted off and fly through the air and, you know, disappear in a little starburst. And so it just sadly reminded me of that. And, you know, to see that Hector Hammond got took out like Team Rocket is just disappointing. Yeah. And it's it's he really has very, very little to do with the narrative. This is really impulse 
in charge of Green Lantern's ring and what he would do with it. So you could have just put any, you know, any, any made up villain in, in the, uh, antagonist role. And you didn't have to have Hector Hammond. And, and like you say, it's nice to see Kyle facing off against a significant Silver Age villain. But I would have liked to have seen that as a, as an epic tale, not as kind of a throwaway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely see that there. Um, yeah, overall, aside from that, uh, aside from that nitpick, I, I thought it was fun. You know, the, the, the dialogue was really good. McCone, in my opinion, cannot do bad art. Um, Andy Lanning, I think, does a decent job of painting him, but I, I'm trying to remember who inked him in some of the Green Lantern issues that I saw him in. But, uh, it's, it's good art, so I don't really have any complaints about it. So far, I have to say, this is probably my favorite story in this book. And, like I said, for a book that's filled with little inconsequential 10 page stories that, you know, could have easily been inventory stuff that had been sitting on the shelves for possibly even decades, uh, that's a credit to this book. So I, I loved it. Yeah, I, I agree with that totally. Cause books like this often just are filled with inventory stuff. And, and for all I know, this is an inventory story, but at least it's a good inventory story. Mm-hmm. Well, and we had one, I don't know if you've read through the rest of the stuff in the, in the comic, but we did have a story from Marv Wolfman in here that, that did really feel out of place. And, uh, yeah, it, it had that inventory feel. So luckily if this wasn't an inventory story, this was a much better one. And I like on, uh, which, well, basically I guess, yeah, it's, it's once, once he gets control over, uh, Kyle and, uh, he's basically got the Swami hat on, Mm -hmm. but the green Swami hat. So he's, he's actually using the ring to make a construct of the Swami hat for himself. It's just, it's just glorious. It, it's just all a bunch of fun. Very, very, very much. I mean, that's, it's hard to describe it beyond that because it's just, you know, it's a short story. It's not, you know, you don't have any, any real, you know, big time subtext here. Uh, just, it's kind of like, well, what would you do if you had a Green Lantern of your very own? Mm-hmm. And he gets to, you know, create, you know, video game constructs and a, a weird theme park ride. You know, just, it's just fun. And, mm-hmm. and, and various, uh, multiple Mjolners as well. I'm looking yes, at that I was just looking at that. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is fun. Uh, Paul, thank you for coming on and talking about this comic. I really appreciate this, especially, you know, I've got, I've been thanking everyone who's been doing this because I, I just kind of thought of that out of this out of the blue and I thought, you know, maybe I can put it out there to see who would be willing to come on and talk about this. And I, I, Really enjoyed getting to talk with everyone here, and especially getting to talk with you, my good friend. Yeah, it's been it was my absolute ple- pleasure to be on. I'm, I'm thrilled to, thrilled that you asked. <laughs> well, um, like I've asked most of the people who have come on the show, I would want you to go ahead and promote some of the things you're doing out on the internet. Where can they find you aside from? Well, where can they find you out on the internet? Yeah, well, that's, that's good that you say it that way. Cause basically they can find me on Back to the Bins. Mm. Uh, you know, that's, that's my prime show. That's, that's what I do pretty much every week. Uh, love doing that show. We, we take, uh, if, if we're in normal format, we take three books, one Marvel, one DC, one independent, and we give a synopsis of the book and we discuss them much the way that you and I have been discussing this book. Uh, and then, you know, we often find ourselves off on weird tangents. Uh, we have an offshoot of that Avengers spotlight that we try to do the occasional episode of. 
And uh, if you keep listening, perhaps you'll hear some more Listen to the Prophets. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is a good possibility that show might be coming back. So, yeah, keep your ears out for that. It might be resurfacing. But I've got to say, back to the bins, I am so glad that you started doing that because just listening to you, whether it be you and Bill and Scott talking or you having guest hosts on, the conversations that come through on that show and the people that you've gone on, it just makes it a fun show to listen to. I'm glad you enjoy it. And uh, I think, uh, I I mean, you did do your assistant editor's month, uh, but I think uh, we're pretty much due to have you back on for an episode with us. Oh, well, that'll be great. I can't wait to hear that. I can't wait to be on that. (laughs) I can't wait to hear it. (laughs) And then hear it after I've been on. But again, yeah, I think we need to make plans to to do that again soon because I I enjoy having you on. Well, that's awesome. Well, Paul, again, thanks for coming on, and uh, we will. We'll be talking to you soon. Thanks again, Sean. Not bad, not bad. Boulder's definitely feeling the mode, but one thing I learned in the future, Amigo, is that it's easier to destroy than to create. Ta-da! And because uh, this story is so awesome, I've picked another person to come and cover with me. And why? Because, well, it's my podcast and I can do that. This person is a person who knows a lot about speedsters because he has a podcast covering the Wally West version of The Flash called Flash Legacies. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to welcome back on the show Mr. Dave Walker. How's it going, Dave? Not bad. How's you? I'm doing good. And like I said, we're going to be covering, once again, the story written by Mark Wade called The Lantern's Apprentice. This one, of course, again, was written by Mark Wade, penciled by Mike McCone. The anchor was Andy Lanning, letterer was Pat Prentice, and the colorist was Matt Webb. And, like you heard before, in the heart of New York City, big-headed Greek Hector Hammond is causing a ruckus as Green Lantern Kyle Rayner attempts to take him down. Luckily, or maybe not, the useful speedster Impulse makes the scene and attempts to help Kyle out. Unfortunately, Impulse distracts GL long enough to allow Hammond to control his mind and almost get him sapped. Fortunately, since Hammond didn't get to complete his mind whammy on Green Lantern, Impulse is effectively able to control Kyle like a ring-wielding Siri. Taking delight in being able to make Kyle whip up whatever he wants, Impulse eventually, after a few minor setbacks, takes out the colossal cranium criminal, freeing Green Lantern from the mind control. Crisis averted, Cal allows Impulse a chance to use the ring constructs on his own by cleaning up the mess that he made in the city. So, uh, what do you think about this little short story, Dave? It's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Very silly, but a lot of fun. Well, and I, I'm glad that I'm glad that you like that because overall, these stories have been really a lot better than what we've seen or what what 80 page giants usually produce. Usually when you get 80-page giants, as I've said before in the show, you get a lot of inventory-type stories, and you don't get the best writers. And if they are good writers, it's kind of just throwaway stories that they really didn't put much effort into it. Mark Wade did a really good job and wrote a really fun story in this. And it's nice to see Kyle Rayner going up uh, against a villain that isn't hair metal sonar or, <laughs> or some bastard son of dark side. I'm glad that he's going up against Hector Hammond. And uh, anytime you can have big-headed freak Hector Hammond in the book, I'm always happy to have him. You realize he only—I ha- I think he only had one story since the last time you looked at him. Mm-hmm. And the story before that had 
more monkeys in it. That's true. And it had both of these characters' predecessors. Mm-hmm. That is surprising. Immediate predecessors. <laughs> I, I wonder I wonder if we talked about that. Did we talk Did about, we? I think <laughs> we may have. Yeah, we did talk about a, an episode where it was Hector Hammond and some monkeys and a speedster and Grey Lantern. Hmm. Everything's all, better with monkeys. It all comes full circle. Or imps. Um, but yeah, I just really enjoyed this. I love seeing Kyle go up against the the classic GL villains. That's always mm. fun. Hector Hammond is always a good foil. Uh, it does have a lot of comedy beats in here. I, I you know, since I'm not all that familiar with uh, Impulse on the basically the what is it the the title page where you get Impulse uh, thinking to himself. Uh, that yeah. Hector Hammond hasn't mind whamming Green Lantern, and you've got that. Is that a common trope for the Impulse stories at the time? Yeah, um, he, I'm pretty sure he does this a lot. It t- I remember when I first came across it, it took me a while to work out what was going on, but I think I saw a picture of a screw and a baseball. I was going, what, what's the point of that? What, what's he going? Then I worked out, oh, screwball! Mm-hmm. Yeah, ah. I, I think now I know Mark Wade is uh, mm. readily attributed to writing like one of the better runs on the Flash series. Did Wade come along to write uh, on Impulse after that? I don't think he has. I, I don't think he's shown up yet. Um, I'm trying to remember. I I think it's who's writing it at the minute. I meant to write this down, but he's he's writing Flash at the minute. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Wade and in this run, he actually created Impulse, but I don't think he's covering his uh, Impulse's stories over in Impulse. Okay. Um, I think we're up to, like, issue 44. At, it's 44. Okay. Yes, it's around, it's around the 40s at this point, and I don't think Mark Wade has been on it. Um, I can check. If you give me a sec. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean... Um, he did create um, Impulse in around the same time that Kyle was created. Mm-hmm. Um, they're only a few months apart in, I guess, our age, ages, you know, uh, as opposed to comic ages, you know. Yeah. O- obviously, Impulse is only two. So, um, yeah, that's that's a fun thing to remember whenever he gets aged again and has possible relationships with people. It's technically only three or four. Yeah, that's not uh, disturbing to think about. I mean, all, is it? it's they, they they never do that with any Green Lanterns. I have never heard of them making a Green Lantern age themselves so that they can get it on with anyone. No, that would never happen. Thank no, that, that that would just be bad. But um, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's... No, not at all. I, you know, like I said, I just really enjoyed this. The artwork in here, of course, it's Mike Bacone, so. Mm. I oh. don't have anything negative to say about Mike Cohn. He does some, you know, I don't know uh, the the anchor for this guy was Andy Lanning. And Andy Lanning actually showed up earlier in the book uh, in writing the uh, Big Barda story with Dan Abnett. So it's nice to see that Lanning can also do, you know, stories as well as inking. The artwork in this, I think, is probably some of the best. And like I said, for these little short stories that you get for the 80-page giant, you kind of expect them to be throwaway little stories but wade and mccone put a lot of effort into this for this little sort of goofy fun one-off story for a green lantern book and i just incredibly enjoyed it oh and i just realized completely wrong mark wade wrote the very first issue of impulse so it's yeah i'm fake 
<laughs> that's no problem. I, I, I just going through a little specific notes. I do like, you know, the comedy beat here where Kyle kicks Hector Hammond in his floaty chair and this giant ring construct cannon and then <laughs> blasts him off. And all I could get because my kids are still into it was team Hector Rock. Hammond's blasting off again. <laughs> I just love that. I thought that was incredibly fun. But yeah, this was this was, if not the best, one of the better stories in this issue, and I just had a blast reading it. Yeah, um, the, I, I I didn't get the Sim Sim Salabim thing. I think that's something from Arabian. It's, it's if it's not, it's Johnny Quest. It's it's original Johnny Quest. They did have a remake of Johnny Quest going on at this time, but apparently that's from um a character from Johnny Quest, Hadid Singh. Yeah, Haji. Yeah he's, Haji, Haji. He's yes. basically Johnny Quest sort of uh essentially I guess he and Dr. Quest found him in like a marketplace in India and took him on as sort of his sidekick. Yeah, it's it, I, I didn't I didn't think about that, but that uh, when uh, it explains the turban because I saw a picture. Well, and you know, Impulse's idea that he's going to be a sort of his sort of genie and he's going to fulfill any wish that he wants. So that that works there. Hmm. I also wonder. Um, let's see, what is this on page fifty one near the end of the story where uh, Kyle's got. Hector trapped in the ring construct cage <laughs> and he's blasting music to uh, keep him from being able to uh, think properly. I'm wondering if it's against the Geneva convention, if he blasts him with uh, the spice girls. I'm pretty sure it is. I, I, I think um, I, I have heard rumors that that's been used in certain uh, Cuban based places. So it's, uh, it's, it's very, very wrong. Well, I'll Should not be allowed. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I want. I, really really want not to hear the spice girls but yeah, uh, see i've had that problem since 1996 1997 <laughs> so but yeah i love this story i i'm really and i'm glad that i also got to to have you on to uh, talk about this you know uh, when when everyone popped up to do this there were a lot of people who you know wanted to do various different stories and i i was glad that i able to got you in here to do this as as well as producer paul so thank you for coming on to do this dave that's no problem. Um, a lot of fun. Do you want to go ahead and tell people what kind of stuff you're doing on the internet nowadays? I, I try to do uh, flash legacies every once in a while. I have had a lot of trouble with it. Um, I, uh, I get it out when I can. Mm-hmm. It, it, I tried to get it out bi-weekly. Didn't happen. Apologies. Mm-hmm. Um, I show up occasionally on Hutu Freaks. Yep. We're um, going to be working on something here in the future. You know, by the time this comes out, it'll be getting really close to Peter Capaldi coming on as the doctor. Mm-hmm. And we may have to convene the freaks to uh, see what they think about his first episode. So I'll, we'll probably be talking about that pretty soon. Cool. And I think that's about it at the minute. Um, but yes, um, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, it's always good to talk to you, Dave. Always good. So uh, we'll be moving on to our next story then. Cool. Not crash, dude. Not crash at all. <laughs> Swink Loaded. And we're on to our next story. This one is the Plastic Man story, and the person that I have penned to help me out talk about this story is a person that you should all know. He is the host of Dave's Daredevil, Daredevil podcast. He was also the host of Pad Smash and the Starman Observatory, amongst very... Uh, amongst many others 
unfortunately, he's taken a little uh, step away from podcasting for a while, but I hope definitely he'll be back soon. And I am very glad to have on the show today with me, Mr. J. David Weeder. Hello, Dave. Yes. Hello. You came to find me in the little hut where I'm brooding over my past, cliffhanger style. <laughs> I'm I'm really glad that I was able to get you to do this. You know, I, I was disappointed when you you said you were putting the mic down for a while, but I am glad that you're going to be doing these little uh, guest spots. I, I, I In fact, I didn't even mention before we were talking, I enjoyed your guest spot that you did on our assistant editor's month over at uh, Back to the Bin. So that was great hearing you there. That was a blast to talk about John Byrne. Mm-hmm. So I was excited to do it. Oh, yeah. Well, and, you know, the the many iterations of John Byrne from DC to Marvel to his independent stuff. That was a fun, fun show. So it's it's good to have you on the show again, Dave. Yep. Good to be back. But uh, like I said, the story that we're going to be covering is the Plastic Man story, and it's entitled Anything You Can Do. The writer was K.H. Callens. I think that's pronouncing it right. The penciler was Kevin J. West. Inker was Norm Rapund. The letterer was Bob Lappin, and the colorist was Mike Danza. On the JLA Watchtower on the surface of Earth's moon, Plastic Man and Green Lantern pass the time that they are spending on monitor duty by playing a little game of superheroic charades. Cal can barely tolerate the rubbery antics of Eel O'Brien, but luckily he won't have to as the intruder alarm goes off. The two split up, checking separate sections of the base, with Plastic Man not taking the situation too seriously. However, he probably should, as he runs headlong into a giant green hulking figure, not wearing purple pants, mind you, who brings a beatdown on the malleable madman. Plastic Man wraps up the intruder in his stretchy body, but the alien suddenly teleports away. Kyle's search is obviously taking him to the horrible uniform design wing of the Watchtower, where he looks at a picture of the Riddler cosplaying as Green Lantern. <laughs> Sorry. As he moves on to the Starro Aquarium, Plastic Man sneaks up behind him and fills him in on the alien situation. However, Plaz's description is rendered moot as the alien attacks again. Cal and Plaz fight its shape-shifting and intangibility powers, eventually trapping it in plastic in a Plastic Man-formed box. Crisis averted, the two revel in their victory until the alien mysteriously disappears again, leaving the two heroes puzzled and the onlooking Martian Manhunter contentedly amused. <laughs> this was a fun story, and like I've said before in this episode, for an 80-page giant to have these quality of stories is pretty mind-boggling. Usually, and I saw this last 80-page giant, it was a repository for inventory stories. This, they've got some really good writers, some really good artists to come in and write some really fun stories. So I'm glad that, you know, I can get into talk about this with you, David. What kind of things do you have to say about it? Well, first of all, once you said Plastic Man was an option, I had to jump because I love Plastic Man. Mm-hmm. And I love this. This story shows exactly why he is a fun character. And I, I'm drawn to those. He's also funny. And I love the idea that this was really in the end, just a big pissing match for fun. Mm-hmm. The villains aren't a threat, per se. But you have Plastic Man basically doing a Titanic. How can you not love a story that starts out that way? I, I agree. It's, you know, Plastic Man is one of those characters that's just, he's constantly trying to be jokey. And I think you kind of need that every once in a while. It breaks up the the seriousness and the grim and gritty factor of some of these stories. It's nice to have someone in there who's just not taking it 
well, who's taking it seriously, but doesn't feel like he's taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, there's some just, uh, and the fact that he can pretty much make his body into anything. I love the fact that, you know, when Kyle asked him to do uh, some Japanese things, he makes this sort of giant mech suit. (laughs) And then, of course, Kyle squashes him with a giant Godzilla foot. That's, it's just fun. And anytime you can have a Godzilla cameo in a book, I'm, I'm happy with that. Yes. But, uh, you know, uh, the story, like I said, these little short stories, you sometimes they can really go badly, but this one does really well. I'm not really certain what, uh, uh, KH, uh, Cannells has written before, but I know, uh, uh Kevin West penciled, uh, the last thing that I remember seeing in pencil was an issue of uh, Justice League around after the time when uh, Dan Jurgens left the book in the early 90s. And unfortunately, uh, his art during there wasn't really good, but it really suits this story really well. I think Plastic Man looks great. And Kyle looks pretty good as well. He doesn't look off model, so I'm I'm happy with that. No, everything has a sharpness. It looks It looks very tightly penciled. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember anything else from West, but this I was really surprised at the quality of the art because most of the time, as you mentioned, it might be an inventory story. That's a great idea where just an art, a fill in artist is, is brought in. And, and that's not that this is an exception, but this happens to be a very good fill in artist who fits his story. Mm-hmm. I am kind of disappointed on 57, even though I think there's some comedic moments in there with Kyle seeing the little Storo, which, uh. They happen to keep in a glass jar there that they had to reference that awful, awful, awful 90s ice outfit. That thing was just horrible. And I don't know why that got designed and who designed that, but they need to be slapped repetitively for coming <laughs> up with that. I'd actually looking at it. It took me a while to realize it was ice because mm-hmm. it's like, why did the black cat show up? Oh, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, this was, I don't know why they did this. This was a point where I think they depowered her or something, or uh, this was just before they killed her. And, you know, if, if I saw, you know, like a superhero heroine wearing that, I'd say kill yourself as well. Cause oh, that's just, uh, okay. Maybe that's a bit harsh, but <laughs> that's not a good uniform, especially. No. And, and I think we've talked before about, you know, how ice's original uniform, the blue and white with the sort of, you know, half shirt on top was just a really nice look. And this is just, oh, bad. Yeah. I, I like the fact that also not only uh, is Plastic Man and Kyle having fun on the uh, on the Watchtower, but John's having some fun as he's the, <laughs> as he's the alien there. And, and most of the time during the JLA run, you don't see John having fun. You see him as more of the, uh, more of the serious character who's, you know, trying to make sure that things all coordinate with jla to see him having some fun with plastic man in this little story is just great and then the the thing at the end where you find out that the alien was john and he's got that really big grin on his face that he's taking these two take the mick out of these two guys it's just fun so i anything they could do i can do better <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah I, I it's it, it's a nice it's a nice little twist ending and for you know an 11 page story to have a bunch of fun in it, some good art, and a nice little twist ending is is really a treat. So uh, I again, once again, like I've said before in this in this episode, this is another really good story that I really really enjoyed. Up, oh, bar none, and and uh, they really used Plastic Man to his fullest extent. He wasn't just stretching; he was making shapes like a unicycle. 
uh, the mech you mentioned. He's a Jack. Even though those don't make sense a lot of times, I still like to see creative uses kind of like Green Lantern's ring, Kyle's ring. Mm-hmm. And then now that you mentioned that, that's a nice parallel. You know, Kyle can create all these different things with his ring to do that. And Plastic Man can morph his body into all these very various creative things. So that's that makes them a nice sort of parallel, you know, different but similar characters. So I didn't really think about that. But that's a that's a good point you put out. And and not only does he make the different, uh, you know, uh he also does, it's also great to see him do different character faces. And one thing he's doing is sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger thing where he's all beefed up. And then he's doing, obviously, earlier in the book, a Jack Nicholson type look. So it's, like I said, just a fun, fun little read. I, I, I'm glad that I got to talk about it, talk about this with you. Well, there was that great moment, though. Just one more note, sorry. Yeah, no. When he was looking at the ice statue where he's like, I don't feel like a second rate substitute anymore. So not only are you getting this fun story, you get this moment where Kyle's like becoming content and happy with his role in the league. Mm-hmm. He's like, thanks to Plastic Man, I'm not the clown. Yep. <laughs> Which is both mean, but, you know, when Grant Morrison was putting Plastic Man, Plastic Man into the league, he's like, it's like Jim Carrey on the Justice League. Yep, pretty much. And I like the fact that, you know, at that time... I've heard the the reason another reason Morrison put him along was to sort of give Martian Manhunter, uh, who's also in this book, a, a a person to amuse him. That the Manhunter enjoyed having Plastic Man on the team because he made him laugh. Mm-hmm. And then this is a, this is a great story to represent, you know, the the comedy and the humor that Plastic Man brings to the team, and that that John takes some delight in that humor. But yeah, this was great. I don't have any more notes. Do you have anything else on this, Dan? No, this was fantastic. Thank you for for letting me talk about it with you. Well, it is always great to have you on. I hope to have you on. You know, let me know if there are any issues that you'd like to come on, and I would be glad to have you on and talk about anything. I'm trying to figure out. I'm way behind because my I switched phones, so not all my podcasts are loaded again. No problem. But I'll have to figure out where I am with where I left off listening and where you are now. So. Okay. And, you know, like I said, anytime you want to come on, I would be more than happy to have you. You know, at this time, I'd usually say, you know, where can they find you out on the Internet? And, you know, sadly, that's that's not a case right at the t- that at this moment in time. But uh, is there anything you, upcoming you'd like to plug or anything or just? Well, I am uh, a fire and water podcast. Uh, put an idea in the head of some listeners when Chag pointed out nobody's doing a Legion blog. So if you check out legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com, you will see me doing some toy reviews and uh, some coverage of the post-Infinite Crisis Legion era. Oh, nice. It's not audio, but yeah, it, it is. I am still working. I'm not leaving comics completely, even though pe- people probably picture me doing a Dave Chappelle thing and running off. <laughs> <laughs> so long as you're not Rick James, bitch, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't just walk away from $40 million. So That's true. Well, Dave, thanks for coming on the show. It's always, always great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Help! Help! Police! Help! Help! Police is my middle name. Plastic Man! I answer to that, too. Problem, ma'am? Okay, and we are ready for our final story of this book. It's a Zatanna story, and when I thought Zatanna story, there was only one person on the internet who I could think about wanting to record with. This is the second part of the Andrew Leyland, Michael Leyland combo of Hey Kids Comics, 
and he's soon to be a college student and unfortunately soon to possibly not be a member of Hey Kids Comics anymore. Hopefully that's not true. Hopefully the show will keep going on. But it is my extreme pleasure to welcome, again, first time like his father officially on the show, Mr. Michael Leyland. How's it going, Michael? That's going fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, great. Uh, Like I said, we're covering a Zatanna story in this book, and it's uh, Green Lantern Zatanna, and the story is entitled Crosscut. The writer is Stephen Grant. The penciler is Matt Smith. Not that Matt Smith. uh, Matt Smith, the artist. The inker was Steve Mitchell. The colorist was Mike Danza. And the letterer was Willie Schubert. Our story begins with not Hellboy slash not Iron Fist doing some magic-y stuff in his mom's basement slash magic lair. The Lopan wannabe is hoping his incantations will summon sorceress Zatanna and allow his master to control her mystical powers. At the same time, Kyle Rayner and some annoying hooker he decided to pick up, I guess, are preparing to watch a performance put on by the same magistress. But before the act can begin, she and Kyle are teleported to not Hellboy's mom's basement. Well, they were supposed to be teleported there, but they end up in an area of the Ditkoverse where Zatanna's backwards incantations only work through Kyle's ring. Somehow, the magical mystery tour melted Kyle's and Zatanna's powers, forcing Kyle to fight not Hellboy by ruling his ring through backward speech. During the fight, Zatanna learns that she can use her powers via force of will like Kyle. Working together, the two follow the fleeing, not Hellboy, back to his lair slash mom's basement, where he mysteriously bursts into flames. Crisis averted, Zatanna has Kyle reverse their power sets and offers him up a consolation for missing her show. Tickets to an all-female mud wrestling event, which sadly Zatanna won't be attending or participating in. Meanwhile, the glowy-eyed not Spectre, who was not Hellboy's boss, crushes him in his gloved hand and ominously walks away. All right, young Michael, go ahead and fill me in with some notes for this. What do you think about this one? Um, I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. To be honest, I didn't think it was all that great, but I enjoyed it anyway. It was a fun little story. Oh, go ahead. No, go on, Carol. I was going to say, you know, that's kind of what I I feel about a lot of these stories. When you're writing these little 11-page stories for this giant uh, 80-page giant or the what we would see in the Silver Age of these 100-page giants. The original stories, with the limitation of the page count, you can't really expand that much in the characters, so you've got to kind of get in and get out. And for what it is, I think it's a decent story. You know, would I like to see a bit more of this expanded in a a full Green Lantern or a full Zatanna book? Yeah, that might be nice, but overall I thought it was enjoyable enough. Uh, I, I I quite liked actually how um, Zatanna and Green Lantern knew each other, but Zatanna and Kalorina didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. So I I kind of let that superheroes know other superheroes, but they don't know each other's secret identities. But because Zatanna has none, Kyle knew who she was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed that. I I really enjoyed the portrayal of Zatanna. I was wondering if this is pretty common for her portrayal in comics because she seems to be a very no nonsense type character uh she's not really flummoxed by a lot and i do like that she's also uh, there's this panel where uh, kyle changes into his to his uh, green lantern uniform and she actually you know has a little combat of hmm not bad you know saying that uh guys aren't the only ones who like to look at people in skin tight clothes so 
the fact that Zatanna yeah. is a person, you know, who dresses in this top hat and this bustier and the fishnet leggings and has a very sex pot type look. The fact that she could also be a bit, no, oh, not really sexist, but a bit, you know, well, yeah, maybe a little bit sexist and looking at Kyle's butt and his skin tight clothes as well. So that I like, I like that character, characteristic yeah. of her. I, I quite like that too. To have, Zatanna's a character is because she's never been written by a single writer in a long run. She always has kind of like different interpretations when you read her, but I liked this one because it was very similar to um, Paul Dini's Zatanna or Grant Morrison's in Seven Soldiers. And I, I quite liked how she was portrayed in this mm-hmm. with her, her dialogue, I thought was, was pretty funny. Now the artwork in this is, like I said, was by Matt Smith and not, you know, not specifically, well, the, the place that I know Matt Smith best from is a storyline where Jeff Johns brought Hal Jordan back into the DC universe. And, of course, I'm not talking about uh, Green Lantern Rebirth. I'm talking about the story Day of Judgment. And I covered this recently on uh, Just One of the Guys. And basically, Day of Judgment is a story where where, where Neron and the demon basically try and take over the specter so that they can have absolute power to destroy the universe and the superheroes have to go into hell to re- reignite the fires of hell and uh, certain other team of superheroes have to go into purgatory to find a soul to, to, to inhabit the spirit of the specter and eventually they find the soul of Hal Jordan who eventually becomes the specter. So I thought it was interesting that Jeff Johns wrote that story but in that uh, Day of Judgment story, Matt Smith was the artist, and I kind of commented that Matt Smith really didn't work for that because the Day of Judgment story was kind of a superhero dust-up, and his art really didn't seem to work for that. His art style works here, though, because this is a this is a sort of mystical, magical, Doctor Strange, Zatanna-type feel, and it really works here, and... Uh, Another thing in that uh, Day of Judgment storyline, one of the things that it introduced was the characters, or I guess the team of the Sentinels of Magic, which essentially brought together all the magic-based heroes in the DC Universe. You had, of course, Zatanna, you had Alan Scott's Sentinel, you had Dr. Occult, the Phantom Stranger, John Constantine wasn't in it, but Blue Devil, the Enchantress, and uh, Madame Xanadu. So it was kind of uh, a precursor to what I uh, kind of believe uh, Justice League Dark is sort of like. Am I thinking correctly there? Uh, yeah, kind of. Okay. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this. You know, it was it was decent art. The art worked for it. And uh, I think that uh, I think uh, Stephen Grant cut a good handle on both the characters and uh, made their voices sound essentially the way they should sound for the characters. So I like this and I'm glad that I'm glad that you enjoyed it too. The, the art to me looked like a mix between uh, Mike Mignola and Yannick Paquette. Mm-hmm. And it, it had that kind of vertigo feel to it, which suited the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what I got, especially from the, uh, the unnamed sort of mystic character that we see in the beginning of the book. His face is definitely, a Mike Mignola face. Uh, but yeah, the, like I said, the art works for this sort of darker, mystic, magic-based story. And I think uh, Matt Smith is a much better artist for these kinds of stories than he is for just out-and-out superhero stories. But yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, do you have any other notes for this, or are you good? Uh, yeah, I, I liked the powers mixing up, which was pretty fun. It's, it's always kind of fun when they do that. Mm-hmm. But then the, at, at the end, was Zatanna says, oh, just say 
just say it backwards and we'll get our powers back. And I'm, I'm sat there going, if they said that earlier, wouldn't they get their powers back to normal? Maybe because they're in this strange sort of magical universe where their powers had been changed, they couldn't say that and have their powers back to normal. Or maybe it just didn't occur to her at the time. You know, they were too busy taking on this threat of the balding sorcerer guy. So, you know. Maybe uh, maybe it's just me nitpicking a little bit. I, I, I don't think it's a nitpick. It's a valid point. But, yeah, I think... I think it's just one of those things that really wasn't, you know, all that thought through. But it doesn't, it doesn't diminish the story. You've got to have the switch up that uh, is the impetus for the tale going on. So, uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's understandable. My my favorite bit of the whole issue though was was the ending. Well, the whole <laughs> the whole story was the ending with the the all the women mud wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> Is that an actual thing, or is she just made up two tickets to a show that doesn't exist? Um, I can probably say that there are places in New York City where there are women's mud wrestling <laughs> that does go on, but I don't think they sell tickets to it. Uh, at least, like not like professional tickets. I think this is one of these things that you just go to a bar and it tends to happen there. So Z- Zatanna's got his in tickets to uh, a Hooters Friday night special. Exactly. Ah, uh, man, I <laughs> I could really go for some chicken wings now. Uh, but Michael, uh, unless you have anything else to say on this, I I really enjoyed uh, having you on here. It, it was fun being on. Well, I appreciate you doing this, and that wraps up our show. Uh, I'd like to thank all the people who came on to talk about these little comics. This was kind of a spur of the moment thing, and I'm I'm really glad that I got to talk to all of you people, especially you, Michael. This has really been fun. So thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it too. Okay. Well, uh, next time out on another episode of Just the Go- Just One of the Guys, we're going to be covering another Green Lantern book and another 80-page giant, Green Lantern number 127, which deals with Green Lantern basing off with a Firestorm villain, which is kind of ironic because the other villain that he's going to be fighting against is a Firestorm analog. Plus, the 80-page giant will be an ongoing story or a full-length story, so that'll be interesting to tackle as well. So I hope you guys will come back next episode for another episode. I should script these out again. Anyhow, bye everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Greenland podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scan the covers and whatever else I feel like putting on. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Devon's contract. 
but it doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greedlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was I Fought the Law and the Law Won by The Clash, off their album Hits Back. As always, you can buy this album in a myriad number of places, probably at your local record store, maybe even online somewhere. However, if you do decide to purchase the song or the album online, I'd ask that you go to Amazon.com to do that. I'd also ask that you go through the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to buy the album. When you go to 2TrueFreaks and click on the banner up at the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon where you can buy the album, buy the CD, or buy the digital download. You can also buy a myriad number of other things, including music, videos, games, anything that the modern geek would desire, all at ridiculously low prices. And every time that you make a purchase through the 2TrueFreaks link at Amazon.com, a small amount of your purchase price goes back to help the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps us out. So, if you're thinking about buying anything online from Amazon.com, make sure you use the link at 2 And while I'm doing my outro here, I'd like to thank everyone who came and helped me out for this episode. It's a little longer than normal, but I had a blast doing it. So thanks to everyone who came on, Rob Kelly from Aquaman Shrine and the Fire, Fire and Water podcast. Andrew Leyland from Hey Kids Comics and Palace of Glittering Delights, Stephen Lacey from the Fantasticast, W. Blaine Dowler over at Big Screen Batman and Bureau 42, Paul Spataro from Back to the Bins, Dave Walker from Flash Legacies, J. David Weeder, who's now currently doing a blog for the Legion of Superheroes, but who did Dave's Devil podcast, and especially Michael Leyland of Hey Kids Comics. It was great to get the opportunity to talk to all of you, and thank you for participating on the show and making it perhaps the most awesome thing that I've been able to do in a very long time. Thank you all so, so very much.